Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Get Together podcast with a special year-end review. This was 2020, a year in review is the title. And 2020 was, in my opinion, a very special year. I would say it was a hell of a ride. I remember well those friends uh, a year ago when we were talking about plans and goals and targets for the new year who said and also posted on social media thank god that 2019 is over it can only become better in the new year and actually it did i mean uh, everybody was motivated and started uh, out really well into 2020 all the hopes were very high that this year, we're talking back in January, would be the best year ever. And suddenly, <laughs> I think everybody is meanwhile aware of uh, the situation in the world. Everything changed. And uh, is it a change for the better? Is it a change for the worse? Or is it just another meaningless iteration of circumstances in the course of the eternal universe in the end? We will find out, I believe, in a couple of years. Uh, but today, I would like to chat with you and with Matthias and Astrid about how your perceptions of 2020 talk about your successes, your learnings, your failures and what made 2020 special for you, except SARS-CoV-2. Astrid, how was your year? Yeah, my year was actually pretty good. Um, so from a professional point of view, I mean, for uh, so people who don't know me, um, I'm head of research and a partner at uh, Falcon Digital Investment. So we're currently rebranding from Cytel Ventures. So it's the same uh, beast basically, but just a different name. Um, we have actually seen that through also COVID and this increased digitalization, that has been also an enormous uptake in uh, blockchain related projects, which is the area that we're investing in. And um, so we have actually been very pleased also with our own funds performance and have started to realize some of our assets, which is really great. Um, and also in the blockchain sphere in general, it was actually very very, very good year, so to say, because we could see that, you know, there's increased institutional adoption and also the whole ecosystem is more professionalizing. You get more uh, service providers that really help um, users get onto sort of um, blockchain technology related um, uh, applications. Um, we have also seen um, the rise of DeFi during summer. Um, which has unfortunately overloaded um, the Ethereum infrastructure, but help is already on the way. Um, we have also seen the launch of Polkadot, um, which is an amazing project um, uh, that tackles scalability and interoperability in uh, the blockchain ecosystem. And so we're very fond believers in uh, the whole Polkadot ecosystem, how it actually will bring together sort of this um, multi-chain uh, universe and how these different applications and will be able to actually talk and transact with each other. We've also seen that um, actually politics is starting to take this um, 
uh, topic very serious. Um, so we can see first draft regulations around also stable coins, also in the US around um, uh, general blockchain uh, projects and also a push into uh, a more um, friendly sort of way in, in, in some jurisdictions, not, not in the US specifically, but uh, in Europe, for example. So it's been actually a very good year on that front. Um, obviously, you know, just because you mentioned also a favorite topic, COVID, just to brief mention, um, it, it has obviously also been a challenge on a personal level. So anyone who experienced a lockdown with kids knows that it's not very easy to juggle actually between, okay, childcare and uh, work and then the overall household that comes on top of it. So that's been a challenge on that part, but I think we've managed quite well so far. And um, so overall, I'm looking forward to um, you know, the end of this year and see what great things will actually wait for us next year then. That's great, Astrid. Uh, thank you very much for your introduction, Birds. Uh, Matthias, as far as I remember, you ha you're uh, living currently on Cyprus. You have yes. uh, yeah, ocean and sun. And how is life on Cyprus? <laughs> <laughs> It's good. There is some sort of lockdown uh, here. Mm -hmm. But also for the people who don't know me, a quick introduction from my end. So I'm Matthias Tarasiewicz. Um, I also work with Astrid um, um, with uh, Fact and Digital Investment, but um, more um, from the tech diligence perspective. So I'm looking at, um, also on coordinating a lot of the technological diligence there. I'm also running the, the Riot Institute. So I'm the director of the Riot Institute in, in Austria. And uh, I'm also um, working with, with my colleague, Ralph Pichler, with the company Drop All Tables, where we're doing a lot of... Um, technological coordination projects um, around the blockchain space. And um, yeah, as I'm also the um, um, one of the board members of the Open Source Hardware Association in the US, um, this year was particularly interesting for me, but um, it hit me a little bit in, in March when um, we have been organizing the Open Source Hardware Conference, which is an uh, annual gathering of open source enthusiasts and hardware enthusiasts in order to um, investigate um, how we can actually bring this open source paradigm to hardware. And we were a little bit challenged there because um, being like physically and tangibly in um, New York was a little bit challenging because actually NYU um, somehow closed down all the facilities. So we had to um, really move the complete um, event to a digital event, online event, um, which was, um, yeah, not, The most challenging part, but um, essentially like, being stuck in New York was a little bit challenging for me personally. So I eventually um, could actually return then um, to Vienna, to Austria, to actually also see my family and everyone. And then actually the, the, the lockdown um, came to be. So um, after all and looking back at these different lockdowns I have been in, <laughs> um, they all somehow feel a little bit unreal, to say the least. And also this year feels like it's like five years combined into one. So it's an absolute <laughs> compression. Uh, it, it, it feels so absolutely uh, dense. It's insane. Yeah. But also like looking from a pro uh, professional perspective, I have to say a lot of um, positive things also happened this year, which a lot of people often overlook. You know, and of course, the pandemic is, is, is insane and, and, and it will have um, a lot of um, um, things uh, we will see in the future that will actually, um, so this is actually has changed our whole life and our whole interaction um, with each other. And I guess it's also not that easy to, to, to stay at home for that long for people who are not used to this kind of thing. Um, 
so I guess um, what uh, was one of the positive upsides of it was um, that digitization came faster than expected and a lot of um, um, things progressed. So a lot of, um, while a lot of um, problems uh, for the economy have to be observed, um, we see also that digitization went very, very fast and came very fast and came swift. And um, I think we are still in this, in this phase. So for example, um, looking at uh, how many um, shipping, uh, how much shipping and, 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 and um, all this logistic uh, sector has been affected by COVID and will be from now on affected by this um, is actually interesting. And to see that all and a lot of, um, um, of the economic sectors have not been prepared um, on these sorts of things happening see, um, or shows us, in my opinion, how um, finely tuned um, our um, economy was on the exact uh, parameters. So the parameter set was like a, a rather um, thin one. So there were no um, expectations of any uh, black swan events. So it has been, in my opinion, also the year of uh, black swan events. And also the year is not over. I'm expecting <laughs> the worst to come. How, 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 many, how many did you count? I mean, black swan events... Um... <laughs> It's nothing to plan for, I guess, because usually to say it's, it's, it's very rare. How many did you count? How many Black Swan events? I mean, we have a lot of interesting things coming together, right? So we have um, the pandemic, which is already a little bit insane. Then we had uh, the all-time high of Bitcoin, which is still um, continuing, which is, um, it will be interesting. So I'm, what's, I'm, I'm wondering. What's, what's, what's your estimation? How high will it fly? I mean, I, I read a lot of, I read a lot of, um, analysis about the, the future price of Bitcoin. Some make a very rough comparison to the last bull run. I think it was uh, in 2017. Yes. It went up 20 times. And uh, if I project it right now at the price of $23,000, it would mean it goes up to 500,000 in a year. But what's your opinion about that? So my opinion is, and I really don't like price discussions, but I see always like like from a professional it's perspective. An, it's a, it's an, an opinion. It's no advice. Yeah. So it, Oh, sure, if you sure. would like to buy Bitcoin, please uh, talk with the financial advisor <laughs> first. So, <laughs> yeah. So personally, um, I always see the um, price movements or too much price movements of Bitcoin as a bad thing. Um, essentially, um, if you look at um, all these kind of different um, hypes and bubbles we had already, you mm -hmm. can observe that always when there's too much price rally going on, the uh, quality of the projects drops like crazy. And you, um, usually... With our institute, that also means I get a lot of emails and we have a lot of emails to, to work with where people get scammed into some, like sending to some fake Vitalik putter in some, some ether or something like that. This, this really happens. And, and, um, so, um, essentially, um, this means a lot more work for, for us and, um, in order to inform more people about, um, uh, not your keys, not your, uh, not your coins and all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Um, it's actually, um, from a project perspective, always bad for the blockchain uh, sphere when Bitcoin uh, has a price rally. So essentially, this is also easy to um, explain why this is the case. So for example, when the price stays stable, that also means that there's like a lot of, um, in a way, um, um, kind of um, trust into the system. And then a lot of um, people like um, start looking also uh, on the left and right hand side in order to invest into potential altcoins or like different um um, projects that are more interesting than, than, uh, Bitcoin. So personally, I'm not anti Bitcoin, but I see it a little bit as the kind of, uh, vintage, um, kind of, um, technology that we, that is like for, around for 10 years and uh, didn't solve a lot of things. So what it's solved, let's, like pretty let's talk, good. 
Yeah, but that's, yeah, I think that's also elements. really my opinion on that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that the issue really is, I mean, uh, I always warn, I mean, again, this is not investment advice, <laughs> um, but I always warn people, you know, with the old grandma out there, you know, starting to talk about all oh, these Bitcoins, you know, and maybe we should invest in that. That's already a warning sign for the market in general. So it's definitely not the time to put your money into something that you don't fully understand. And especially the cryptosphere, I mean, I've recently really digged through the top 500 uh, coins, so to say, on CoinGecko. I need to say 90% of that you can easily throw out. There's not much value in those. And then it's maybe 10% where it's allocated. There's a really legendary and good project behind it with good also fun- fundamental analysis that you can actually go about. And with Bitcoin, it is, um, to me, really sort of a, a, a kind of story of uh, age and media coverage that it is sort of one of the oldest coins that is out there. Um, it's been in the media all the time. I think if other coins got that attention that Bitcoin had, they would skyrocket even more, personal opinion. And um, because also from a technological standpoint, I mean, Bitcoin is very limited in what it can do in uh, terms of other things that are out there. Even if you look to Ethereum or what I mentioned just before, what Polkadot um, promises to be. So um, I also think personally that this term of uh, Bitcoin being digital gold is actually a very misleading one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather uh, have gold still, I need to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the, vis- the vis- visible part of, uh, of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology is actually, as you say, Bitcoin. Currently, it's... Um, let's say hammered in the news by some billionaires who, who recommend and billionaires who recommend buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is not blockchain. So I think there is much more in the, te- uh, in the technology than uh, what we see. Um, and I have to say, I have not really understood what the black blockchain technology is about and what it can uh, do for life science. Uh, can you uh, explain maybe with one or two examples from 2020 uh, what the technology is? Um, well, in general, it is sort of, um, if you think about it, it uh, so, so, so let's maybe just uh, briefly uh, state, you know, what also the evolution maybe of blockchain was in the last few years to make it a little bit more understandable. So basically when 2009 Bitcoin uh, came into existence, um, you could see that on a sort of public ledger, you had transactions uh, built together into blocks and they were, these were sort of chained together, so a chain of blockchains. And um, then you had sort of in 2014, you had sort of the advent of Ethereum, which brought smart contracts onto these blocks of chains. So again, um, what does a smart contract mean? It's, it's actually just a different term for a sort of dump program, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So, so it's something that can sort of compute on these uh, blocks. Then from last year, we saw first movements around uh, this uh, one project called Cosmos, for example. And also this year, I would have mentioned already Polkadot projects that are trying to tackle the issue that you have these sort of isolated chains out there and one of them is working for each other and maybe you have sort of an ecosystem building on top of it but it's not really able to transact otherwise uh, with other ecosystems easily you know there are bridge technologies out there but they're not being used as much um, Mm -hmm. as they could probably and these really try to uh, build sort of the internet of blockchains so that really Blockchains can actually communicate with each other, can uh, sort of exchange tokens, but more importantly, actually exchange data with each other. Mm. And 
Um, where can we see, you know, um, uh, usage of it in healthcare? So, for example, supply chain is definitely something um, where you can say, like, okay, where does uh, my uh, ingredients come from? Uh, are they legit? Are they controlled? Um, you can also um, put together sort of uh, things in terms of um, what you have around, uh, let's say, stock checking, for example, auditing, um, uh, and also around uh, democratizing really um, how you go about funding uh, life science projects. Um, so also for uh, sort of through uh, crowdfunding platforms. So there are many actually aspects on how you can utilize uh, this technology also in healthcare. And I think it's all just being very much uh, underused. For example, one also project that is going about reimbursements in um, the US is Chronicled, which I think is a very interesting project to look into. Um, it's also built uh, on Substrate. And uh, it's sort of in this Polkadot ecosystem. And uh, this is this is actually also a very interesting use case because it is sort of a blockchain uh, infrastructure that was um, planned to be neutral. So it's not really built by one single entity out there. Um, but all entities actually, so all sort of bigger corporates that you would know actually sort of uh, contribute feedback and requirements for this kind of infrastructure, but it is something that is really built to be neutral and also hasn't gotten investments out of that reason. So I think this is also sort of a way to see, you know, how this technology can actually be used. But Matthias, maybe you have also a different view on that. Definitely. So I think um, while blockchain had its um, momentum already some years ago, I think like we see um, a lot of like um, interesting things um, that came to the surface, um, especially in the... Uh, uh, during the pandemic. So um, as Astrid, you explained, uh, I think a little bit um, closely, was um, that we have um, a very different um, amount of blockchain uh, these days. So there's not only um, um, Bitcoin as the first blo blockchain or, um, or the chain, which is was called the blockchain in the beginning, but we have like a multitude of different um, chains in the meanwhile. So the most um, used these days um, being Ethereum. And um, while Ethereum um, is um, actually or was the first um, kind of um, decentralized world computer or, or decentralized um, um, computer that would actually be able to trigger specific uh, computational events such as smart contracts, um, Ethereum is, um, uh, is challenged already. So there's a lot of different chains out there. And I think what in blockchain was relevant, especially in 2020, was that um, there's um, some kind of um, next level um, chains that appeared on the horizon, which, for example, as you mentioned, Astrid, is uh, Polkadot, but also we saw other similar chains with different um, aspects in this regard. So with, with like um, different um, ap approaches to the same problem. So we saw um, Ava, Avalanche, and we saw also different other uh, blockchains tackle this kind of um, um, interoperability and um, the situation that um, and this kind of connectedness between uh, um, systems and all, even trying to be compatible to the Ethereum layer. So um, while this doesn't sound like a big thing, it is though, because even in the um, medical industry and in the in the um, in the healthcare industry as such, we see a lot of startups that are um, working with blockchain on, and, and trying to use specific elements that the blockchain um, somehow gives them or brings them in order to to be able to. Um, create an added value for their products so or for their supply chain, as you just mentioned, Astrid. And there's like a lot of other elements as well. So, for example, um, 
um, supply chain being just one, but um, we have other um, examples where you might want to um, kind of um, make sure that you um, have this kind of um, consortia that can actually, for example, make sure that a certain um, um, information, um, so-called Oracle, um, um, that is automatically um, in a way, uh, in a cryptographic way also accessible, um, is um, governed. So um, these are, for example, it's maybe a little bit um, of a... a, a um, um, kind of detailed topic for uh, um, like going from uh, introduction to, uh, to blockchain to oracles, but think of it like everything that is not on the chain is not um, um, you, you cannot really automate or like like write a smart contract with because there is a lot of things that are happening in the real life, and for that you need so-called oracles, and these oracles need governance because otherwise somebody could feed like um, bad information or like. Uh, uh, untruth uh, or un untrue information in, uh, into this um, oracle, and then could potentially game the market or like make a make a profit. So this is why um, oracles are important, and I guess like a lot of um, information um, relating um, to the health industry would be also relevant as an oracle. So take for example um, um, COVID nineteen infections or some some things that you really cannot find out from a from a chain only perspective, and that, that need actually proper um, um, kind of entering into the chain. So I guess this is also pointing um, to the data uh, as that you have been referring to, or that, that this kind of um, democratization of data. I think this is one of the most important things that happened in in, in this um, in this um, troublesome time. So we saw um, that a lot of the um, scientific, or the, the the majority of the scientific community was actually questioning um, what happens with research when because the the kind of um, um, publishing times were too slow. So um, in, in order for us to develop vaccines very fast and in order for us to, to um, um, deal with this kind of instant real-time uh, research data and so on, we need like completely different, um, we need to, to question the existing publishing system and uh, need to question the existing availability of research data. And I think this has happened to a large extent in this year, which personally is, 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 is fantastic. So I, I wrote down a few interesting things that I have uh, noted in this regard. So um, we saw, for example, that um, there has been some um, also early attempt from the European Union to um, to release uh, and to make available European standards for medical supplies and to make them freely available in order for um, um, different um, open source scientists to be able to to work with um, um, this information in order to produce specific um, gear and equipment. Of course, this also um, has um, raised a lot of concerns because the cannot undergo all this kind of rigid um, um, testing and, and certification procedures. But also um, what I uh, saw in this regards was um, that a lot of um, interesting projects um, appeared in this kind of opening up of the science. So we saw the open source ventilator project. So one of them um, uh, you might have heard of was Project Open Air. There was a um, very interesting um, workshop in this regards on CERN in, also in, in, in March. And um, there has been a lot of like um, different interesting um, papers that came out, like comparing all the uh, different aspects of open source uh, um, hardware and open source medical hardware. So um, our institution, right, has been uh, starting also a small uh, blog in this regards, which was called Open Source COVID uh, Wiki, which you can find on wiki uh, uh, covid.riot.at. And um, there has been a small work group and there have been a lot of others. So we are just one of these um, work groups. But um, most importantly, um, there has been also some um, different officially um, designs by the European Union. Actually, I'm, I'm talking about so many different uh, things here. I, I started to write them down. So maybe we can share later through this kind of sketchbook also to all the sorts of links sure. and things that we 
that we are talking about because I think this this information is potentially also interesting to the to the viewers. Absolutely. So essentially, I think um, like um, while uh, we had all these kind of um, um, elements that were challenging for us, we had also a lot of like um, positive aspects. We have to we we could also. Um, focus on so blockchain being just the, the key technology here in order for us to open a new way of doing research of in, of actually making it um, um, also research available and in order also to to um, find um, new ways of how the economy could um, evolve uh, post pandemic. This would be an interesting question, especially when we are uh, coming to diagnostics and uh, talking about diagnostics uh, in Austria. We have a company that uh, I think also mean while everybody in Austria might know it's uh, Symptoma. Uh, his CEO is uh, Chamana Tekri, who is joining us right now. And it would be very interesting to hear, Chama, how the year for Symptoma was in 2020. Yeah, thanks for having me, Christian. Hi, Astrid, hi, Matthias. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, was a really interesting year, um, definitely. Um, so, I mean, a couple of things that happened is that the co-founder of BioNTech, uh, Christoph Huber, became Symptoma's scientific advisor. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's great. That's really big news. Uh, so, he's focused on precision medicine. He founded two billion dollar companies, both in the field of uh, precision medicine and uh, therapeutics. And he sees Symptoma as the counterpart uh, on the diagnostic side in precision medicine. Symptoma became the most used symptom checker worldwide. So we are now reaching 10 million patients and doctors each month. Impressive. Um, it's a medical product. Um, this year alone, we have uh, conducted three scientific um, papers uh, and, and studies and um, uh, yeah, published them. Uh, for instance, Nature published our COVID-19 um, uh, paper Uh, demonstrating that Symptoma has a 96% accuracy rate uh, for uh, symptomatic COVID-19 patient. This is something that we talked about the last time I've been on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was in April, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the second paper has also been published on uh, COVID-19, demonstrating that Symptoma has the by far highest um, accuracy rate on uh, COVID-19 compared to uh, 10 other solutions on the market, um, out-competing by far even Apple and uh, yeah, all the others in, uh, in the industry uh, that were tested. Um, a third paper was really interesting, uh, also already uh, published on the preprint. In 23 countries, um, we can predict the COVID-19 trends five days in advance. Um, and... Yes, so this is all on the on the COVID-19 side. Um, we have uh, heavily um, increased our team size over, over the course of this year, although it was quite challenging. In Vienna, within 12 months, we've uh, relocated a third time. Now we are... <laughs> in, in, now, one, in one year? In one year. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so now we have a whole floor. Um, in a skyscraper where the um, uh, where Austria's public social security uh, security uh, uh, social health uh, insurer is actually uh, so they are also our landlord and already also uh, our research partner. So we are moving to the center of healthcare in Austria. 
Is it uh, where, where is it? Is it in the inner city in uh, the first district or close yeah, to the uh, second district? Yeah, in the uh, Gasse, mm -hmm. so, Nice area. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's really wonderful. I've been there, um, and yeah. So those are just uh, like uh, some of the the small achievements. Uh, I think the biggest have been. Um, especially the team and how they were capable um, even in home office to um, yeah not only have the innovations uh, on the market reaching a lot of users but also scientifically proving that uh, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, yeah how high how accurate it is and then also um, then of course comparing also to what is what else is happening in the market last time Astrid you talked about COVID-19 cowboys um, and uh, we have actually proved that in our second paper so thanks you for the inspiration <laughs> <laughs> by the way um, to see really that it is not that easy uh, to have a solution like that even for COVID-19 and that it's actually um, I would also say somewhat dangerous to have solutions out there that have not been scientifically tested, not transparently tested. Um, and uh, so I hope you're just giving an idea um, to, to be more rigorous in terms of what kind of products in healthcare we are bringing on the market as a society. Um, and yeah, we are also supporting, uh, we have been contracted by the European uh, Commission, by the Austrian government, by the city of Vienna, uh, by health insurers, um, uh, hospitals and, and companies in order to help not only fighting the COVID-19 crisis, but also thinking beyond uh, what is going to be needed. Um, a fourth paper is on the way where we are demonstrating um, the COVID-19 accuracy um, also in combination with the PCR tests. So saying, well, Symptoma, you, uh, at Symptoma, you had a really high score. And how predictive is this high score uh, for an actual uh, COVID-19 diagnosis? Um, and uh, yeah, uh, on a personal side, uh, I got married. Congratulations. <laughs> this year. <laughs> Thanks. And, That's the best um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then also... Uh, also, to my um, uh, my big surprise, uh, I've been nominated as Austrian end of the year, and to my biggest surprise, I actually won <laughs> for my for my research at Symptoma. For, thank you. So it's uh, so it's uh, you're the first celebrity then uh, on our podcast. <laughs> I don't I don't think so, but <laughs> uh, but, but thanks for <laughs> for flattering. Um, yeah, I was really really surprised, mm -hmm. and. Um, so I, I think I was the first one in history uh, for the awards uh, to be uh, receiving the award in a wetsuit uh, because they were actually fooling me. They just uh, told me, yeah, I am one of the finalists, um, yeah. but they weren't inviting me to, to, to the actual uh, gala dinner and just said uh, they, they just want to, to have a, um, yeah, a video recording um, of me jumping and swimming in the lake because uh, they heard that I am doing this quite regularly, even in the, in the winter time. So there were five degrees uh, Celsius outside. And so, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what are you doing? <laughs> explain explain uh, it a little bit more, please. I... <laughs> yeah, of course. So a part of my morning routine is um, not only waking up early, uh, mm -hmm. like uh, today it was 3 a.m., mm -hmm. but sometimes also at midnight, um, uh, having a workout. 
and then um, uh, actually uh, swimming in the lake, uh, regardless whether it's summer or, or winter. What what, um, la what lake? <laughs> I'm curious. Like the, the lakes in uh, around Salzburg. So they have uh, for all the viewers outside of Austria. So it's not it's uh, not it's not as far. So no, it's not, not as. No, and, no, it's and, and you do it in winter. I mean, in winter it's uh, it's freezing cold, so it's it's really freezing cold. It's it's. Uh... It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, the water is uh, it's it's somewhat fine. I mean, yeah. uh, you can tell the temperature of the water um, if you actually listen uh, when when I'm when I'm swimming swimming because when it's really cold, I'm still um, uh, yeah. Uh, swearing <laughs> and then and in march uh, uh my swearing stops so my neighbors yeah. know that uh yeah uh, no and, it's good enough and how long do you swim usually it really depends so uh, of course in the in the winter it's not that long um mm. of course if, if the lake is frozen um i only have like, like like a little spot to to go in and you can't really swim it's just uh being in the water <laughs> uh, for, for the fun of it Uh, but then in the winter, it's like a couple of minutes. And then, yeah, normally it's, of course, more. Um, and I listened to a podcast recently. It was from Louis House, uh, The School of Greatness. It's uh, an interview done by Wim, uh, I interviewed Wim Hof, who is also a strong advocate of uh, living and swimming and uh, doing everything in the cold. Um, <laughs> what's your opinion on him, on, on this Wim Hof method? method? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Um, I think it's really refreshing. <laughs> and, it's, and you start feeling that you actually live. Uh, <laughs> uh, and especially... Actually, you're getting warmer after you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're getting out of the lake and you feel just warm. Mm -hmm. um, it's just part of the normal biological reaction, as we can, can tell about it. Um, and yeah, it's just part of the routine. Uh, of course, if you're standing there and so the moment before jumping in is the, the most difficult <laughs> one. Uh, sometimes you're, you're freezing your asses off. Uh, just waiting outside because you have to overcome your your fear to actually jump into that really mm -hmm. cold water. Um, but it's it become a habit to overcome uh, something like this, and you just start with the day with another uh, with another success. So having done the the workout first, uh, the hormones released um, are indicating that you have succeeded in some point. You're doing the next one. You're overcoming a next fear. And uh, so overcoming all the challenges that you also are uh, encountering in work, um, it's easier done uh, knowing that, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's not too bad. <laughs> And it's not that cold either. So mm -hmm. once you have been there, it's, it's fine. Especially if it's uh, really freezing cold outside, the, the water is actually 
kind of warmer than <laughs> than outside so so it's a lot of relief no i, I, I read that that the morning routine is very important for uh, all yeah. successful people and i mean it made you austrian of the year so <laughs> there's something in it yeah let's go a little bit back to 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 the diagnostics i think a lot happened And I think still, I mean, the biggest problem that I see in, with SARS-CoV-2 is uh, to diagnose it properly in a way that people uh, don't infect other people. So as far as I understand and I saw your solution, uh, it's possible to, it's my understanding, but please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that someone who is infected or fears infection can get diagnosed at home uh, very comfortably. And if your test is positive, then you can link it to a PCR test so that you narrow down the people who really go to testing. Did I get the right picture of your solution or is there something screwed up in my mind through media? No, no, uh, you got it almost right. So the important part is that we are not making the diagnosis. It's just mm -hmm. about screening and assessing the risk that you might have uh, uh, COVID-19 and helping the government in order to prioritize um, your case and uh, the, the resources uh, like the PCR test. Um, and then it also helps um, to, to bypass the, the call centers because um, yeah, <laughs> most of the time the people are all calling at once uh, as it happens. And then even the 40 people that you have in the call center won't be um, of, of much help. And this is why The chatbot is, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite convenient for, for the Viennese. So within 24 hours after it has been announced that our chatbot is helping um, a screening the Viennese for COVID-19, um, the, the AI has processed 1.5 million questions and answers um, and uh, was quite a great relief, I, I heard. Um, and then, yes, uh, the PCR test results anonymously are linked back to our test IDs, uh, which are also anonymous. So essentially we know which of our assessments were actually um, yeah, uh, eliciting a, a positive uh, diagnosis. And this is again, a really great feedback, feedback loop mm -hmm. uh, that we can learn of, uh, because you also have to know that um, we not only have a standardized questionnaire in order to ask the COVID-19 symptoms that are already known, but we also allow a free text input of further symptoms. And those further symptoms are also being taken into account in order to calculate the, the risk for COVID-19. However, especially if there are new uh, symptoms that have not been linked to COVID-19 yet, this is the real, the real opportunity to actually uncover them. Um, and so again, it shows that digital mm -hmm. health and AI mm -hmm. are are necessary cornerstones in order to get to precision medicine. Um, because if I can talk, uh, give a two sentences about precision medicine. So the difference between uh, the medicine that we live today and in the future, which is uh, precision medicine, is the following. That currently we are drawing conclusions and defining diseases based on maybe 5% of the data that might be relevant to characterize this disease correctly. This means that we, um, we just have a broad brush and saying that, okay, all those people have uh, diabetes type 2, um, but essentially there are even more subtypes maybe to it that we, don't, we are not aware of. Um, and digital health and AI can help us assessing the data necessary to broaden our view and um, to better define the subtypes that might be relevant. 
And now I think the 15 minutes are over. No, no, right? go ahead. I think maybe that we still want to know from you, you know, since we're now at the end of 2020. So what are your plans for 2021? What's happening at Symptoma really? <laughs> uh, so now we have 1000 square meters of office space in Austria uh, and a really big team. But uh, the biggest thing is um, to uh, to actually get closer to the heart of medicine. Um, and um, especially uh, in order to do so, uh, we are stepping up our game. So we have operating at the profit since beginning, since almost 15 years now. Um, we have demonstrated that we are capable of overcoming um, technological innovation that others have deemed to be impossible and still others are still struggling with it uh, despite of having hundreds of millions of, uh, of dollars and funding. And so we think that we have all this, uh, our, everything set in order to, to boost our, uh, our current market position. And uh, so now we are focusing for 2021 on, uh, on a bigger fundraising campaign. Right. How how big is it? How big is it? The fundraising. Campaign? I can't disclose that publicly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but but uh, you are looking for investors, basically. So, anybody who is interested to contribute or to participate and support society in solving the SARS-CoV-2 problems on a diagnostic side can do so by approaching you and asking to come on board. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so we have been postponing our fundraising. Mm -hmm. For five years in a row now <laughs> and always taught the investors Good position to be in <laughs> yeah so so far we have always told the investors well next quarter or or, or, the, or the one uh the other after uh but but now the the, uh, the time is right and so all the investors who have already contacted us um uh, yeah we, we are going to reach out to them and also if others are interested um we're happy to align in order to form the future of medicine as we envision it as precision medicine. Chama, I wish you all the best and your team and uh, keep on fighting to improve society, please. <laughs> Thanks, Christian, for, Thanks. for offering us this, the stage. Also, Astrid, and uh, it was always nice to be on your podcast. So have, have a great day. Bye-bye. Yeah, so now we have um, another special guest, Elisabeth. Kneisel, uh, we met in also during the during the lockdown and did an interview together about vaccine development. And uh, Elisabeth is a journalist from Austria, and I hope uh, it works now. Elisabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, good to see you again. How are you doing? Hi. Uh I'm great, thank you. Uh, I mean, amidst a crisis like this, it's, uh, I, I guess we are all struggling somehow, but um, I'm doing fine, thank you. Um, I think uh, you are probably one of the of the journalists who spent the most time this year on uh, doing uh, research work on what's going on in solving the problem. Tell me a little bit more about uh, the results of your work and uh, whom you did do it for and why. Yes. <laughs> Okay, um, so I'm specialized in uh, TV journalism, but uh, also in organizing newsrooms. And when the crisis broke out, I was working for uh, Addendum, which was a investigative media platform funded by Dietrich Mateschitz, the founder of Red Bull. And uh, we were mainly focusing uh, instantly on the crisis. And my job was uh, 
to build and coordinate an internal task force that was reporting all the time. And so the first uh, challenge we had, and there were huge challenges, was that soon we found ourselves um, sitting at home and... Um, and, and usually we are all in, in a large newsroom and it's easy to communicate because I just can ask any of my colleagues, hey, uh, we're still waiting for this article, uh, hurry up and stuff like that. But like uh, instantly the amounts of emails and texts and phone calls went through the roof. So um, while the events were rapidly changing all the time. So there were news every day, so many stuff uh, to keep an eye on and to monitor and to um, like uh, keep an overview, distribute all that stuff to my colleagues and make sure uh, that everything we uh, publish is fact-checked, data-based uh, and something uh, to rely on was like extremely tough during that crisis. Yeah. How did you actually go about, you know, this changing environment, you know, that the, every day you got actually new information out of COVID and sometimes was quite contradictory. How did you actually manage that? Or did you have also a panel of experts behind you? Yes, of course. We are constantly working with uh, experts uh, in the field who help us, who support us uh, with a lot of information and data. We had an internal um, team of uh, data journalists who are really specialized uh, in filtering huge uh, data sets uh, and distilling the information from it. So uh, that was something that uh, helped a lot. But in the end, um, it's all about uh, being transparent. And sometimes, and this is something uh, that uh, I guess you guys know as well, uh, it's not easy to say, this is the truth. So if you find out that stuff is contradictory, then you have to say it and uh, and you have to point it out. So this is one challenge uh, we were facing, but another challenge uh, we are facing at the moment um, is a huge distrust in traditional media outlets. And a typical example for that um, is the topic of vaccinations. And this is something I guess you guys know um, as well. Uh, because like every time during the past couple of years, we did something on vaccinations, um, no matter what the uh, specific content uh, of that story was, we were flooded instantly with uh, reader reactions uh, telling us that we were funded by um, the pharma industry, that this is all part of a huge conspiracy, um, etc. And there is so much... Um, emotion in this um, in this whole discussion and the emotion, the fear of people prevents them from being open to information. And this is a huge challenge we are facing in, in journalism, in media specifically, um, how, to, um, how to treat this, especially now in a time of crisis, in a time of uh, where a lot of people are afraid what's going on and not understanding um, what, uh, how to how to deal with uh, this constant change. Um, when, we, when we met, it was, uh, I think it was in April um, mm -hmm. this year, uh, we did an interview together with Erich Tauber from Themis Bioscience. Yes. Meanwhile, it's acquired by MSD. 
and uh, he's also one of the he has one of the teams who is developing a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2. And uh, you brought up the idea uh, once you called me and said, uh, "I want like to make an overview of what's going on in the vaccine development in an easy to understand, digestible way, so that everybody understands it." And I sat there. No way. Uh, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> good luck. And good luck uh, with that. you you actually achieved it. Tell me a little bit a little bit more about what's behind it uh, in your work in data analysis and especially visualizing that because the solution you found it was really great. Yeah, so um, as I just said, the main problem we are facing is that people um, are sometimes um, they they uh, they are confronted with a an amount of information at the moment. We are we are all confronted that was never available uh, like this to uh, mankind ever before. And to filter and to process all that information is extremely hard. And what we saw that um, a huge problem is uh, that is is the complexity um, on one side and on the other side uh, that people. Um, tend to spend four hours a day on their smartphones. And uh, and this is the main way they consume mm -hmm. information. Mm -hmm. So the idea was to get to the people um, on their smartphones to make uh, stuff understandable. And, and now we are talking about a medical uh, and a pharmaceutical um, topic that is extremely complex. And um, so what we tried was um, to visualize where um, around the world, uh, where uh, research institutes are working on a uh, COVID-19 vaccine, which uh, biotechnological uh, base they're using, uh, in which uh, stage of the development they are, uh, their names, their countries, and, and uh, like literally <laughs> make one big picture of it. <laughs> and then... Uh, make it scrollable so that uh, people get like uh, the the portions, digestible portions uh, of all that information. And uh, the mastermind behind that was, so I did the whole research on the data together with a colleague and the mastermind behind uh, all the visualization was uh, my colleague Roberto Schwarz, who did a crazy piece of, uh, like, if you get the chance, look at it, uh, a crazy piece of visualization to pack all that information in one big picture. And it's, it's kind of fascinating um, how you can, uh, like, the, the reactions were so fascinating from people looking at that and then suddenly realizing um, the, the amount of work and money and people and companies um, putting so much time and energy into um, into finding this vaccine. And, and the reactions were amazing. So also what we also did was uh, make a visual storytelling um, um, content pieces about uh, how uh, vaccines are developed. So from uh, the lab to the vaccine uh, that gets injected, for instance, uh, then on logistics, um, of uh, developing vaccines and why it takes so long and what's the difference between an mRNA uh, and, and other uh, uh, types of vaccines and, and stuff like that. And we tried to put that in, into visual storytelling uh, 
especially for the smartphone. And, and that's why their reactions to that were very good. Can you actually measure any kind of impact on the work you've done there? Is there any metric that you can actually measure for that? Yeah, of course. So uh, our metrics um, are hit rates uh, and our metrics uh, are... Uh, Is, is the time spent with our content. And we can measure that and we get uh, uh, all the data. And what we saw is uh, that if you make uh, information visual and ideally also interactive so that people uh, can decide on, okay, uh, I want uh, to know more about this uh, specific um, category, uh, but less about that. And I get to decide Uh, the pace uh, and the type of storytelling. Um, and I also get uh, to interact with the content um, that makes people spend so much more time with it. And, and this is something I've been experimenting a lot now lately uh, with uh, my colleague, Huberto Schwarz, which I also mentioned in the, um, in the director working mainly in uh, documentary films, how to make content visual And especially very complex content, big data, stuff like that, that is hard uh, to get over to readers or uh, listeners or uh, viewers, but that is extremely important and contains so much, um, so many um, interesting stories to tell. Yes. So this is something we are experimenting uh, right now at the moment with the aim to offer that services to media outlets, because at the moment, um, also due to the crisis, um, funding is a huge topic and a lot of uh, media outlets don't have the resources uh, to do that type of work. But we also want to offer that to uh, all sorts of companies who have complex data and let's say very complex, um, are working on complex topics that are not easy to explain to a um To, to someone you just uh, uh, meet on the street. You're doing really a great job. Uh, when you confronted me with your idea of uh, making a simple and easy to understand overview about the vaccine development, I said, it's impossible. <laughs> and uh, two months later, I looked at it and said, well, that it, it's a real masterpiece. And I think it's absolutely necessary that people like uh, you support the industry because as you say, Currently, everybody is interested in science, uh, but science is not easy to understand. And scientists yeah. usually don't spend a lot of work in making the science understandable because it's not their job. So uh, they, have, they have other priorities, they have other things to do, they have to push the science forward and not work on make it teachable to everybody. And uh, this is something that you really solved very well. Then uh, thank you very much for, <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for your time. Uh, thank um, you for having me. Come, uh, continue with your work. And uh, maybe you send me the link to, to your graphics and I can put it in the description of the podcast. Yes, uh, that would be nice. Yeah. Super. Have a great day. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Astrid. Have a great day too. Um, what else was going on, Matthias, in, in 2020? Uh, not well, except been... except SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> <laughs> so there have been so many so many things. Um, um, where should I start? So maybe um, we have all um, experienced for the first time also that this kind of decent like centralized infrastructure is also not that um, 
um, like can fail so or, or can actually have a blackout. So we experienced, for example, a few days ago, a massive global outage of um, Google authentication services. So a lot of um, Google Drive, Gmail, and so on was, was ah, yeah, offline, yeah. which is which is <laughs> actually <get> relevant. <laughs> It is still considered the killer um, um, application, actually, of the internet. So um, I, I would say um, email is definitely the, the most used technology out there. Still, and Gmail is it, has. Is it, is it still? Is it still the most used? It still is. Yeah, yeah, but by far, by by, by far, it's out, uh, like it out, it's, it's like everyone has at least one email address, if not more. So, um, and is actively using it. And there's a lot of traffic still going over the uh, email uh, protocol. And or the mail protocol and um, Google and Gmail by far um, is dominating the whole sphere. And this was actually um, a big problem as there is also um, digital identity services linked to all these kind of things. So there's federated services where people log in and um, an outage of one hour um, is massive, which is what happened. And so people are starting to look at decentralized solutions for, for these um, types of services. So we see especially... Um, that uh, in times when everything has to actually be quick and has to work very fast, um, um, that even these centralized services are failing us. So even if they are, so to say, too big to fail, we see all that kind of black swan events again coming up. So I guess this is something um, um, where also blockchain can help in the, in, the, uh, in the future, especially looking into infrastructure and how hard it is to upkeep or to, to keep infrastructure up. So we see also that um, um, we have some interesting financial developments and, and, and economic developments to, to observe in the, in the next um, decade, especially since um, there will be a lot of like taxes, not uh, uh, how, how to put this uh, in words. So there will be a lot of um, unexpected different financial situations for a lot of statist actors happening within the next years. And so we see, uh, in my opinion, a lot of um, or maybe a huge hit on infrastructure. And I see also in this regard an interesting aspect in decentralization because um, um, infrastructure has decentralized already, looking at um, working from home, for example, or like uh, uh, gearing up or like having, um, making sure that there's a, uh, enough and proper equipment to work from home um, there. So we see this kind of decentralization of, 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 of infrastructure happening. And I people think, not I really think, utilizing it uh, so much. I think working, this is an important point because this was mm -hmm. really a, a huge change in this year working from home how was it for you how did you perceive uh, this change from uh staying in an office now to to being relocated to your house and working? uh yeah so for me this was actually um a little bit more op like like planable which is mm -hmm. nice so you don't have to um, commute so much so this is this is very positive on the other hand i see this as a big um, um problem also because people expect you on uh, online the whole time and you're available the whole time so it, it means a lot of um, kind of uh, working very late. So I guess like for people with family, this might be really, really challenging. So uh, looking in my surrounding, like uh, I'm friends uh, with two kids um, that couldn't send their kids into school were like absolutely on their limits. Um, so these kind of things are, in my opinion, worse. But I'm um, looking at um, the whole um, R&D um, scene and, 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 and maybe um, more of the development uh, um, um, culture. A lot of people had a lot of uh, work, so that has been due to the um, massive um, um, kind of amount of digitization. A lot of work for developers, a lot of work for for, for startups as well. So I guess there was a crunch time. What's the right term in? in, in, in <laughs> well, well, this is kind of term in in in, in US uh, venture or like uh, startup yeah. industry. I guess this was crunch time for everyone, and uh, especially for for researchers and for. Um, for developers, but uh, I guess it was also a tough um, time still for everyone. 
And while it's not so hard on me because I, I can work from home and, uh, and I can work um, and I'm like used to that, um, I guess um, what is um, positive in this regard, you can reach everyone so people get used to all this kind of um, um, instant messaging and, and like, um, for example, uh, utilizing the mute button on uh, the <laughs> conference calls. This is something a lot of people learned, I guess. Yeah. So in the, in the, I, I see also the, the, this kind of global perception and global learning of, of, of how to use a, a remote <laughs> teleconferencing software. It's, it's fantastic, in my opinion. So, so I, I remember this, this kind of in, in March and April, all these kind of very poor audio quality calls where you had these people... Uh, um, Usually, you know, like doing all these kind of things in, uh, while while calling, like um, sorting all the 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 home equipment and so on. Yeah, so so I guess like um, there's a lot of um, industries that also had an had an upswing. So, for example, like DIY and home home improvement mm -hmm. industry was like making the having the time of their lives. I guess. I believe. So, it. Astrid, how was it for you uh, relocating to to working from home? What is your experience? I think working from home in general was is is not a bad thing, but it always depends on what kind of setup you've got and what like, sort of providing infrastructure you've got around. So, I mean, I've been traditionally uh, often used from working from cafes, working from any kind of place. As long as I have internet connection, I'm mostly fine. Um, but what really was an issue was beginning of the year when basically um, school and kindergarten facilities closed down. Um, so that was pretty much a challenge um, as a mother of a young uh, girl really to then uh, <clears throat> sort of get together this kind of thing of, okay, here's the kid that you have to watch out for and she can't really, you know, do her stuff on her own. So you need to provide for that all the time. And then there's also work. And suddenly, you know, with uh, Matthias, as already said, this work-life balance has shifted uh, quite strongly. So suddenly the sort of borders are very much blurred of when I'm actually in the office and when I'm actually a private person. Um, so people really do think that you need to, uh, should be available at all times. I have heard also from instances where people told me that, um, their companies are very difficult on sick leave because, well, you're at home in any event. So now you're still at home. Okay, you're having a little bit of a cold, so who cares? So that's actually quite a very uh, bad and worrying uh, sort of development. And I hope that this is not something that will actually stay on. Um, we've also had, uh, also I think what um, has been overlooked through all these discussions is actually also the kind of privacy discussions that happened this year and the kind of technologies that were utilized um, or also um, the issues that, uh, that, that we have around um, the full peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, encryption that's sort of on the horizon now for uh, certain messaging services, which is very, very worrying. Um, uh, we've also had, you know, these contact tracing apps, which um, are maybe in, in the face of a bit of limited use um, because they're not as accurate and, and great. And also there it's sort of it's a sort of double-edged sword. Also, if you think about blockchain technology, guess, which is sort of the camp that we're from, is that um, it's sort of a great technology to um, make uh, connections uh, visible, transparent, um, but it's also a danger in itself that uh, it's actually a perfect um, uh, technology for mass surveillance as well. So I think there is always um, technology that you can use it in a good way and also in a bad way. And um, but um, so, so it, it's been a very interesting year on that front as well.
The home office is uh, definitely something that changed tremendously. I remember last year, I mean, I always thought um, that I'm working for home, from home now for, I think, more than a decade. And I know, I know how it works. Uh, <laughs> so I know how it is to have a video call and, and a telephone call. And I didn't realize that I didn't know. So this year, uh, it changed tremendously because what I learned that uh, before 2020, the usual video call was uh, with an iPhone. Uh, but not actually the video function on. So we were using it like a telephone, telephone conference. Yeah. And I was sitting home at home, not uh, dressed very nicely uh, with the iPhone somewhere. And I had uh, my earbuds and we're just talking. So in, in 2020, I think it was in, in March, uh, the first time I got the message, uh, Christian, why is your camera off? I said, yeah, we have a video call. Why should I turn my camera on? I said, we want you to turn your camera on now. I was, oh, damn, <laughs> I'm not really dressed up uh, to have a video call. So people got more and more de demanding to, to see people. Uh, and I think it's a natural reaction because we canceled all conferences. We canceled all real-life meetings. So the, the, the natural wish to interact with, uh, with people and seeing them uh, came also to the video conferences. And as a result, I mean, when I look at uh, my, my office now, I have uh, these ring lights, I have two webcams, uh, I got a microphone. So uh, I, I think a big push. Um, I think you will also wear digital clothes soon. So I think there's a push <laughs> of the digital arts industry in that front as well. But what, what, do you see what do you see coming? <laughs> But what is your vision? <laughs> well, my vision, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it ranges from everywhere between Star Trek and Star Wars and whatever. Mm. But <laughs> I think there, there there are definitely some interesting things on the horizon for next year. And I'm very much looking forward to the intersection of blockchain, IoT and uh, AI. Um, so the whole interplay of uh, blockchain and hardware, I think, will be something very interesting to watch for next year. Matthias, how do you see it? So I see, um, and I want to actually follow up this topic that Astrid started, which um, um, I don't know how I could forget this, but actually um, in 2020, we saw that um, privacy was is under such huge um, attack. It's insane, actually, especially in the European Union. And I'm really happy, Astrid, that you brought this up. We see um, this kind of attempt to block end-to-end -end encryption. So um, while there is a huge debate already for years and years and years to... Uh, um, um, actually, before uh, 2020, we see that this actually becomes um, a much more um, kind of actual and pressing topic. And um, what is actually sad to see is that a lot of um, um, things get actually passed through in Parliament um, all across Europe um, 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 as a kind of a small um, kind of extra um, to huge uh, COVID um, kind of relief uh, plans and so on. So this is something that will actually um, be um, researched or has to be researched within the next month or years still to come. But we saw, uh, in my opinion, a huge um, kind of setback for privacy movement and for this kind of, uh, um, um, for all sorts of like different um, attempts to, to make uh, um, like the, the individual privacy existing and like um, corporate um, transparency happening. Um, this is also a term I'm, uh, um, I'm quoting here, which is from the Chaos Computer Club, and it's already 30 um, years old and is um, defining this constitutional idea from the Chaos Computer Club that um, the individual um, privacy should be kept high and the um, kind of 
corporate transparency should be um, at least something we we would actually agree to. But I see exactly the opposite happening. And um, while um, a little bit more privacy would actually help everyone, we see also a huge and absolutely insane uh, rise in cybercrime and in attacks. And we saw this also in the past um, days. Um, of course, this was also everywhere in the news. Um, this is a huge um, problem and uh, we cannot overlook this problem anymore. And I think um, the reactions though are the wrong ones to, to um, make um, everyone like a very transparent citizen and to um, um, surveil everything cannot be the right answer. This is especially um, a problem when we look at health data and that um, um, data which is like um, um, very uh, problematic if this would be like available to everyone. And I guess like this is where um, we have a lot of things um, as researchers but also as, as, as Europeans to, to look into and a lot um, to tackle. Um, and this is, there's a lot of um, bad things that happen that I guess we have to essentially make sure um, that we revert some of them. I mean, this, this contact tracing was just the beginning and a lot of bad things already happened that the discussion was huge in terms of contact tracing, but there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of other things also um, at stake here, especially um, looking into the current um, interpretation of different um, um, experts in this field um, of data privacy. I, I guess uh, we might see a lot of backdoors being inserted in end-to-end -end encrypted um, messaging software such as Signal or WhatsApp and so on. So this, this cannot be the right direction. And I think um, we see a lot of problems when it comes um, to the European rollout of all this kind of um, um, surveillance technology. So I, I hope to see some, some, some change after the pandemic uh, craziness um, a little bit um, after the, the four clear, so to say. But let's see how this evolves. Uh, contact tracing, I think, is uh, a good hook point for our next two speakers. Uh, not so much the contact tracing, but it, uh, we're coming back to uh, the secrets of diagnostics when it comes to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, this year, I think everybody got familiar with the term PCR test, and but nobody understood it. So uh, I thought it's a smart idea to ask two specialists from uh, our network to explain a little bit uh, what PCR tests is and what diagnostics can deliver and cannot and what the future is. And uh, welcome today, Irina, back uh, to the show and Albert. Hello, Christian. Hello, everybody. No, I'm here. Hey, good to see you. Irina, how was your 2020? <laughs> I can't explain. <laughs> I'm looking forward for the next year that it will be better. Mm -hmm. uh, and work-wise, how is it going? <laughs> yeah, there's still a lot to do. We are at the beginning of the respiratory disease season mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So the next two months yeah, will be very exhausting for everybody. Mm -hmm. And what's your take on PCR testing? Is it, uh, is it still the gold standard or do you see, uh, and Albert, do you see something uh, different coming in, in diagnostics? Well, I think for the, the infection of the virus, PCRs will remain the gold standard. I don't think there will be anything else. But for quick testing, I think there, will, there are already some really good antigen tests on the market. And the market for antibody tests is just building up. There will be lots of company providing useful and hopefully also quick working antibody tests that finally should give an answer whether or not 
any person has been infected and has antibodies against the virus, or if the vaccination has, has worked and if there are antibodies against the, 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 the virus based on the vaccination of whatever vaccine. I think this will be a very huge market in the next two to three years. Mm. I'm afraid we will not abandon this virus much earlier than that. Don't forget the lamp. This is also PCR, isn't it? It's PCR, but it is a special PCR. Uh, what, yeah. what, is, what, what is this? What is this? Explain to You can uh, work with the samples without extraction. Mm. So that means you are much faster and the real-time is faster. It's not a gold standard like the real-time PCR, mm -hmm. but it is between the antigen test and the uh, real-time PCR <coughs> test diagnostic. And, and how does it work? How, how can I... You need an, 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 a cycler, a PCR mm -hmm. instrument, mm -hmm. uh, because you need the 63 degrees or 65 degrees. Uh, and there are primers and then building a loop It's isothermal, always on the same temperature. And that is this, um, a color change. So you can easily uh, work in the field with the instrument. So in front of the hospital or whatever. And it's much faster, yeah? So for screening people. So for ancient deaths are only for six hours, maybe. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, let's say a day, the diagnostic. And the, the window with lamp is maybe two days. Mm -hmm. But we still need the nose swab. So uh, can we get rid of this? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you need this one. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, is it is it better for the mouth than for the nose? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that the, the real problem when I look at diagnostics is just uh, the mechanics of it currently um, being tested. I, I think testing is not the solution if it's just done once. Um, I think it needs more tests and every two weeks or something. Uh, but or every week, but uh, doing this procedure every week is nothing that I'm very happy about. Uh, do you see something different coming? Uh, is there something different in research, uh, different method uh, that is uh, more convenient for the for the for the person? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah, we call it the... Gargling test. Yes, that's it, yeah. That's the easiest thing yet, but you can't do it with children, with small children. That's not possible. But I think we should point out the, the principal difference between the antigen-antibody tests and the, the antibody tests and the antigen test. The antigen test, as well as the PCR tests, whatever workout they are performing, detect the virus. And the antibody tests will give information if anybody has working antibodies against the virus and therefore is protected. 
So this will be the, the big difference, which uh, is not not really a problem in the market now. But if you have a positive antibody test, like any other diseases, um, you are protected and you don't have to be afraid of any infection by anybody. And next step will be, and this will be a very interesting part of the research, if you have antibodies, you are protecting yourself. But the big question is, is it possible to infect other persons when you're infected if you have antibodies? I think this will take at least two or three months until we have reliable data on this really important question. But this would mean, yes, I may be infected, but I cannot infect any other person, which is the main and the, the core part of re reduction of spreading the virus. Albert, I don't think with the vaccination that there is a need for antibody screening afterwards, or I haven't heard about it. It's not as the test, not, it should be an, a positive test that the vaccination has worked. Yeah. But so yeah. be, on the other hand, on the other hand, it is not clear if you have a, a vaccine already that you are not a spreader. It, that's, that's what I mentioned just before. Mm -hmm. If you have antibodies, and it is it can be shown that if you have antibodies, you are not as possible to, to spread the, the virus to others, then it makes sense to test this. So this is part of so-called neutralizing antibodies. If you have enough neutralizing antibodies, the virus will be neutralized inside your body and you don't spread it out to, any, to anyone else. Mm -hmm. So this this can be the big advantage. Have you seen any data from the vaccination studies that uh, makes you assume that uh, a person who already was infected or got the vaccine is not a spreader anymore? Uh, you mentioned the study that's ongoing, Albert. No. Uh, are there studies out there? Did you see some? No, this is just, as far as I know, it's theory. Mm -hmm. And there are no, no real data because vaccination just started a few weeks ago. And it takes at least five to eight weeks for the, for the person to respond and to build up the immune system. So earlier to January, February next year, we can start with these sort of experiments to find out if you infect these people again with the, with the virus, if they can spread it or not. Where does this figure actually come from? Because it's quite an interesting point, because I know that, for example, from people that I know personally who have had uh, COVID, that basically they were on a testing regime. And at some point they said, like, okay, 10 days after day X, you're actually no longer considered of being able to spread the disease to someone. So where does the 10 days come from? And does it, it, does it even sound like a realistic measure then? Well... The first immune response by the, by the, by the human body is, is producing IgMs. And these are reducing the virus load within the body. But this is only the first uh, response, and we don't know how long this lasts. We also have heard the stories of people being infected again. So this means that the second immune response, producing IgG, which takes, depending on the individual, between three or six weeks, And these IgGs last much longer. And these are the normal antibodies that last normally for years, months. We simply don't know. And these could be the neutralizing ones. The first reaction is IgM. And this reduces the virus, the acute virus load within the body for a few, few weeks 
maybe. But there are very few, really reliable few data on the market. Because it's very difficult to get a, a useful size of samples for, for such a study. I did a calculation uh, with the numbers in UK. They have now 350,000 uh, already vaccinated. Already. Um, they're very happy about it. And then I calculated it. And then I come to four years they would need <laughs> to, vac to, <laughs> to give the vaccine to all the mm. people in UK. <laughs> so there's still a lot to do. Well, it, it, of course, it takes some time to get the vaccines out into the field. Mm. And it's, it's fascinating for me that most of the producers of these vaccines have been producing for at least six or eight weeks on stock, relying that the regulatory release will be done. Otherwise, they can throw it away. It is today. Yes. Is <laughs> sitting now together. <laughs> I think for whole, Europe, for Europe, yes. Yeah. I think the whole industry got speed up. I heard from uh, I think it was Lonza that they have built new factories that are fully automated uh, to keep pace uh, with the production speeds they need these days to get the vaccines out on the market. So it's really amazing to see that. But as far as I see the situation, I think uh, also next year, probably social distancing, uh, hygiene, uh, staying home when sick uh, will help to, to avoid spreading the virus. What do you think? So. Sure. I mean, but that's nothing new. It's, it's true for every infectious disease, however it is called. If you're, if you're feeling sick and if you have a coughing or sneezing or whatever, Please stay at home. But well, already our grandparents knew that. <laughs> yeah, this is this is this is smart. I mean, uh, there is also a project in 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 Vienna going on with these common cold boxes, which uh, I don't. I mean, uh, under that circumstances, which I don't understand. I just uh, thought, what 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 should I do if I really get sick? So the the, the response was go to these common cold boxes. But it means I have to have a walk of at least half an hour through the city. Uh, and when I'm contagious, uh, is it really a smart idea so to, to go out uh, to get tested and then go back home? I and mean, it's, it's a spreading event in my opinion. What do you, how do you see it? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligence strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. I'm not a doctor, but uh, when you are sick, you should stay at home and call the 1450 number. And uh, if you don't feel sick, yeah, you can go. Yeah. But uh, yeah, if you go now for an antigen test yeah, and the antigen test is negative, it doesn't mean that, it, that you are negative in two days. 
Mm. And this, this is dangerous for me because it's, it's complicated for the people to understand it. Mm. Yeah. They think, okay, now they are negative and, and they will stay negative. Yeah. But yeah, two it's days just, later, yeah. it can be <clears throat> that you are sick or that you have the virus. You have to and understand that. The very interesting thing or the interesting part of this, this virus, which for a long time I myself didn't really believe is that you can't be contagious without having symptoms. So from my basic understanding, it was as long as you do not cough, you do not sneeze, I can't be a problem for other people. But obviously this is not the case. And the whole stories with the aerosols, which popped up about summer this year, was quite new for me. And I'm not aware that really intensive researches were made in this, in this part. I mean, this, this is, of course, this is very difficult to understand for everybody feeling good, feeling healthy, and being a problem for others. Mm. So this is this paradox, you're healthy, you might be dangerous for me. This is very, really difficult to understand. I think we need, we need more studies. I mean, if the studies I read so far, I would say are inconclusive. So... Uh, Some say it's not a huge problem. I read one that says uh, one of uh, every five infections is asymptomatic. Uh, others say it differently. So it's, uh, I think more research is needed on that part. But uh, what I see is that, <laughs> that our industry, that our industry is moving really, really quickly forward and coming up with great solutions. I mean, we had symptoma in the morning, uh, which helps people who have symptoms to understand what it might be. Uh, what I miss a little in Austria is the rise of telemedicine. So we have 1450, which is a great thing. But still, if I want to have a, a real diagnosis, I have to leave the house. And uh, people with symptoms definitely are contagious. So I think this is still for sure and didn't change. So putting more telemedicine uh, to work in Austria maybe would help. How do you see it, Matthias and Astrid? I think um, we saw a little bit of telemedicine um, already progressing um, amidst the, the, the crisis, but I, I guess there could be more done. I think, though, it's, it's um, the problem is um, that um, from a digitization perspective, we're not entirely there yet, and people are learning as we go. So I guess also there's like other things to, to um, directly conquer and, and, and address at the moment so that um, this might take some time. Though we have seen that um, um, there is attempts to do so and that this can also um, bring, bring us uh, actually also more relief and bring more relief to the system as such. Because I guess like um, this kind of um, fast identification of um, who is in need of, an indi of, 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 of what is something that um, could also be seen as a kind of a um, im immediately like blocking the whole system. So we, we, we saw this um, on so many occasions and I guess there um, was a few examples where also um, the individual um, 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 spots um, um, at the um, um, at in the individual doctors could be a hotspot. So I guess like um, um, we see also other things um, happening, such as people um, not going even to the doctors if they have like mild uh, uh, symptoms of other things. So this this is this is also not good. So there's like a strong need for telemedicine. I agree with that totally. 
And I think also in, in, co in comparison, for example, I mean, Germany, for example, allows telemedicine or applications to be put on prescription, which we, um, until I know, don't have that in Austria as well. So I think it's something that we can also consider for the future, really, to put in there. And also, I think that uh, in terms of, you know, with figuring out diagnosis and about the symptoms and such, but Uh, let's not forget also the psychological issues that people have faced during lockdowns and after lockdowns and all the things that are coming around. And there's sometimes, um, let's say, it's not very clear, you know, um, how long some of these support mechanisms are actually mm -hmm. held up. Because I think at the beginning of the year, there was just 1450. And then there was also a kind of uh, psychological helpline there as well. And that got turned off and hasn't been revived yet since uh, and on, on that uh, kind of level. And I think this is something where we'll see effects lasting even longer than what we've got from, you know, vaccinations, because people suddenly think about, you know, OCD, you know, they, they uh, clean their hands even more often than they really need to. Actually, they get it to a level where they harm themselves uh, a lot, where you can see that, you know, they already get, got um, um, all kinds of um, lesions and where next effects will actually come on top of that, where other infections will then come and take over, which are equally, you know, unwelcome. Albert and Irina, thank you very much for joining. Uh, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a good start Happy into 2020. For, for all and, of you. <laughs> and please keep thank on you. researching and pushing science forward. Uh, we need you. We'll do that. <laughs> all the best to you all. Thanks. Bye so bye. Bye. See you next year. See you. So we have our next speaker coming uh, now from the United States. Uh, I'm very happy to welcome Greg Mannix from Life Science Nation. Hello, Greg. Hello, Christian. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. It's all Christmas already in your house. I see yes, the Christmas tree. Christmas has arrived. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good thing. Uh, Greg, we had some interactions in the past. Uh, Life Science Nation invited me Uh, two times to speak on their panels, which was a great experience. Uh, the last time in real life was last year in Philadelphia uh, mm -hmm. at uh, the same time of the BioUS. Uh, you are running the uh, Redefining Early Stage Investment Conference. We had plans uh, to do a panel together this year in Paris uh, in real life. And uh, Sunday I got a call from you and said, Christian, We do it digital. Uh, how how was it for Life Science Nation to move from one day to the other, from a real-life setup to a 100% digital setup? I'll tell you, it was very, very stressful because uh, there was so little notice. Mm -hmm. uh, we really didn't uh, know that we couldn't have an in-person conference until about two weeks before Uh, the Paris conference was planned. Um, if you remember back in March, uh, it the conference was supposed to take place on March 23rd. Mm -hmm. um, how rapidly everything changed in the first few weeks of March, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in February, I was traveling around Europe and um, talking about the conference and meeting with technology hubs in different countries. And uh, we were convinced that we were um, still having our conference on March 23rd in Paris. 
And then um, in the first week of March, uh, we realized it was going to be impossible. So we had uh, a little over two weeks to switch to a digital format. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't sure if it would be possible or if anyone would want to participate. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I, I thought that everyone who had already registered and paid money to attend the Paris conference, I was convinced that they were all going to ask for refunds. And uh, this was a, a terrifying prospect. And um, it turns out that not only did they not request refunds, uh, but we actually had a, a very big increase in interest in the conference, mm-hmm. um, especially from remote places like Asia, where uh, they weren't, nobody was able to travel uh, from China and uh, Korea. And you know, these were the first hotspots of uh, COVID. Um, no one was traveling, everyone was on lockdown. And all of a sudden, they had the possibility to participate in a, in a global conference. So um, we actually had a very good uh, turnout. And um, we were all um, very pleasantly surprised by how well it worked and how um, uh, interested people were in engaging and meeting together. Um, despite the crisis, despite the, the lockdown. So it was... It was really an eye-opening experience for us. Uh, you, did a, you did a great job because uh, everything went smoothly and went very well. Um, tell us a little bit more, the audience, uh, about what the RESI conference is all about. Mm-hmm. So the RESI conference, as you mentioned, um, stands for Redefining Early Stage Investment. And uh, it's... It's about connecting early stage entrepreneurs in the life sciences mm-hmm. with investors from around the world uh, in a forum where it's very easy for them to meet, uh, exchange views, and hopefully uh, continue interacting after, after the conference. So um, some interesting um, numbers about, uh, about the conference. Um, when we were meeting in person, um, at our, our conference we do every September in Boston, um, in 2018, there were about 1,000 um, meetings that took place. 1,000, wow. And, um, and that's great, you know, 1,000 meetings uh, between, mostly between entrepreneurs and investors. So it's a, it's a great opportunity. Um, in 2019, there were almost 1,200 meetings. Mm-hmm. So it's continually growing, and that's great. But in 2020, when our conference has gone completely digital, uh, we had 1,600 meetings take place. So um, this tells me that investors are still very engaged. They still have um, uh, they still have their own targets and um, and objectives to reach, and they have to meet with uh, potential investment opportunities. Uh, despite this um, COVID crisis. So um, it's really working. And this is a, a really good forum to help companies um, meet with the right investors. And then the other aspect of the conference is uh, panels, like the ones that you've spoken on, um, that have relevant information for, for companies that are fundraising. And um, some of the panels, uh, most of the panels are made up of investors uh, specialized in different areas, uh, like you know maybe um, early stage therapeutics or medical devices, 
or it might be types of investors like um, angel investors, family offices, corporate VCs, uh, because all of these different groups have um, specific needs and um, uh, interests that it's important for fundraising companies to understand. So we try to include content that's relevant for the companies as well as an opportunity, and that's the, the most important part of our conference, an opportunity to set up meetings with investors and meet for the first time. Yeah. your positive feedback there, um, do you plan to actually in the future keep this a digital format or go back to face-to-face? -face? Because what I hear most often these days from people is really about Zoom fatigue, so that they've really had enough from digital conferences, digital meetings. Um, so how do you see that going forward? That, that's a great question, Astrid, and it's something that we think about a lot. Um, We, we don't think that we'll be able to have any in-person conferences in 2021. Maybe in the fall, if, uh, if everybody gets vaccinated, it might be possible. Um, we are planning for an in-person conference during JP Morgan in, in January 2022. But we think that there will be a place for digital conferences um, permanently. It's not going away. So we're thinking that our conferences will be hybrid, uh, part in-person and part um, digital. And I think we're planning to continue having digital events um, between the, uh, the in-person conferences because it really has been an efficient um, model. Uh, I think in, for the most part, despite the Zoom fatigue, which I completely agree with you, we're all sick of it. Um, but I think there, everybody recognizes that, hey, this is really efficient. I can meet with a lot of people. Um, I don't need to, to leave my home. Um, of course, I don't have the, the travel expenses. I mean, traveling to San Francisco during JP Morgan is crazy expensive, right? And uh, other conferences around the world as well. So um, I think there, there will always be a, a place for digital conferences in the future. Um, although we all miss the in-person interaction. Sure. I think it's I think it's very well put. Uh, I mean, I have made my travel plans uh, for conferences around my holiday plans. So traveling to the United States, to Asia, to not only uh, work uh, for work purposes, but also for a little bit of sightseeing, meeting people, meeting the locals, getting in touch with culture. A combination is very, very good, a very good idea. Uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into what RACI is, because you mentioned investor. And when I talk to the Europeans, uh, I always get the feedback, yeah, we have enough investment conferences. Uh, which is true. I mean, we have uh, BioEurope has an investor branch. We have the BioEquity. We have the Sachs Forum. We have the BioTrinity and much, much, much more. But you focus on a very special area that I believe uh, we in Europe have a problem with because RACI is about the early stage investments. It's exactly. really the key for this problem to overcome the value of death. And you have amassed uh, thousands of investors from all over the world who family offices, individuals, venture funds, who are only interested in the early stages of drug development, medical devices, diagnostics, and digital health. Did I get it right? Yes, Christian, that, you, you actually did get it right. Actually, um, I would say most investors are not investing in early stage. 
So the difficult thing for fundraising companies, especially ones that are doing it for the first time, uh, is identifying those investors who will invest early stage. And because our conference has that focus, um, investors who don't invest early stage don't come to our conference. They, they wouldn't uh, find any value there. So typically we get uh, 300 to 400 uh, investors um, from around the world who are looking for early stage opportunities. And um, it's true that there are, there are many other conferences out there, the you know, Bio Europe, uh, the Bio Convention, um, Bio Trinity. There are many, many investment conferences, but um, most of the investors that attend those conferences are, are not investing early stage. So it's difficult to identify ones uh, that are a good fit. And in these, in these other conferences, there are many other things happening um, about licensing deals, collaboration agreements, um, uh, big pharma um, activities and other things. So they're great conferences, but they're not focused on early stage. So that, that's what makes our, our conference unique. And I think um, we've really uh, filled a, a need that there was in the market. And, and that's why the conference continues to be successful, I think. No, I completely agree. The gap is definitely out there. I mean, we have a lot of opportunities, a lot of entrepreneurs also in Europe, uh, but a lack of investment capital. So matching the early stage uh, companies with early stage investors is a great job because they are really difficult to find. And uh, since the pandemic started, I mean, the upset for the early stage companies is it's never been so easy to reach out to early stage investors via the Digital Resi Conference. And when is the next opportunity for, uh, for entrepreneurs to get in touch with your investment community? Yep. So um, we're, we're planning uh, five Resi conferences in 2021. Mm -hmm. The next one is during JP Morgan, uh, January 11th through 13th. And this is typically our biggest conference um, with the most attendees. We'll see what happens in the digital era because it's um, actually January in San Francisco was our last in-person conference. So we'll see what happens in the digital conference, but um, we have this coming up. And then uh, we're planning on doing a European event, but it won't be in person, it will be digital. And that's in March um, and then June, September and November. So yeah, interesting, interesting times. We'll see what happens, but uh, it, it seems that um, things are moving forward. Uh, one thing that's new that, I, that I'd like to mention is that uh, Resi is now part of a partnering week. We're calling it the Health Tech Partnering Week. So Resi is now a three-day digital conference and we're offering two um, content-specific conferences about AI and about longevity and aging. Oh, great. Because we think those are very hot topics. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Uh, it would be great if you could send me the, the links for registration so I can uh, add it also to the podcast episode and uh, give sure. people the opportunity who are listening to the episodes to directly get the right information when they're interested. Uh, Greg, thank you very much for, for joining uh, our New Year's Christmas uh, Year in Review episode. I wish you and the, the Life Science Nation team all the best. Merry Christmas and a great start in 2021. Thank you so much, Christian. Have a great day. Thank you. You too.
So we have now our next speakers uh, coming from not so far away from the United Kingdom and speaking about early stage investments. Um, I think I can directly hand over uh, to Michael Brown, um, who is, uh, I think, the managing director of Crowdhelix. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Christian. Good morning. Thanks for the invite. Can you How are you me? doing? Yes, I can hear you. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, yeah, all okay. Uh, considering uh, recent news over the weekend, especially that's impacting on, on the UK uh, and, and London and the Southeast. So we're just trying to kind of uh, get through it as best as possible. But um, on the work front, uh, which very happy to share with you, um, incredibly busy, uh, very, very busy, lots of stuff happening. Um, I'm very uh, d delighted to be back here giving you an update on uh, how things have been this year and obviously as a follow-up to a previous podcast that we did with Kimberly at UCL um, earlier on in the year as well. So many thanks for the invite. Much appreciated. Great. Good to see you. Uh, Kimberly is online as well. Kimberly, are you there? I am. Just um, one of those challenge digital challenges we're facing at times during <laughs> COVID. Somehow my camera stopped working. So no if you don't mind, I'll just do voice uh, in the end. That's good. That's great. How are you doing, Kimberly? I'm good. I mean, um, as, as we all, as good as we can all be right now, um, especially it's been a, a, a very, well, is it surprising anymore? I don't know. Matthias mentioned sort of the worst, you know, is it, is it still coming? So it's been a pretty um, interesting few days um, again in England. So uh, yeah, doing well though. Michael, what's, what's going on in the public funding space? Tell us a little bit more about Crowdhelix and mm -hmm your activities in 2020 um, in the public funding scene in Europe? Sure. So um, if we go back a year ago from now, um, I was just at the time leaving my job at UCL of uh, 15 years. Uh, so a fairly safe job, a secure job, going full-time into Crowd Helix, which was then, a, um, well, it still is a, a small uh, an SME. Um, so uh, decided to jump ship uh, to see how things go. And then obviously we've had since then the pandemic um, and obviously this ongoing the challenge of Brexit. And if you'd asked me back then what the impact would have been on Crowd Helix on our, on our business, I would have said it would have been really uh, dire, a really negative impact. But uh, um, luckily, uh, I would like to say strategically, but it's also been luckily as well, to be honest, uh, we've uh, we've had a very strong year. Um, and I think with Brexit and with the pandemic, um, there's been a move towards, um, uh, obviously, people still need to collaborate. People still need to innovate, probably more now uh, than ever before. Uh, people also looking for digital solutions and platforms that will enable uh, new value chains to be created and for innovation to, to move forward. And um, and that's one of the things that we offer at Crowd Helix. So we've seen in the last uh, sort of nine months, um, our user base double, uh, the number of members that we've had at the, in the organization have doubled. Um, projects that we've won have, uh, have tripled. Uh, so we've got a lot of good metrics that have, um, for us as a business, have set us up uh, very well going forward, luckily as a small business, because I know it's a tough time at the moment out there for, for lots of people and organizations. So for us, it's um, we've been a bit lucky and we're kind of trying to 
um, optimize uh, what we can do going forward and positioning ourselves for uh, Horizon Europe, which is the next um, European uh, funding program, which will officially launch in January next, uh, well, next month. Uh, so the budget for this has now officially been signed off. So it's 95 and a half billion euros. So that's of a B. So that's a lot of euros um, for funding um, uh, international projects. So just very simplistically, around about two thirds of that 95 billion, so around about 60 billion euros is going to be uh, designed for international collaboration. Mm -hmm. And this international collaboration is focused very much on innovation. So what the commission wants to see are networks that are being developed that bring together um, you know, translational research organizations with SMEs and um, also showing that there's a route to market in these projects as well, because I think a lot of the projects that have been funded previously, um, they've done some excellent science. And then because they're so, they're so they fit, when they finish, they finish at such an early stage, if there's no follow on funding or enough pull from, from private funding, then a lot of the, um, a lot of these ideas tend to sit on the shelf, so to speak, which is a real shame. Um, but one of the things that um, we're trying to do at Crowd Helix is try to bridge that gap. And uh, we've been doing that with Kimberly as well at UCL. Mm. And um, we've uh, one of the things that I'm, I think she, she's going to talk about when she speaks is about one of the uh, successful projects, which um, we've jointly won. Uh, that's kind of a, a demonstration of that bridging the gap, uh, which is called a project called Touchless. Uh, so lots of stuff going on. I mean, it's it's a bit crazy at the moment um, because of it just feels very surreal with with what's happening at political level and obviously with the health crisis as well. Um, obviously, Brexit is an added flavour of, of of ingredients uh, that is unnecessary. Um, but um, but from a business perspective, we 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 we're luckily positioned quite well and look forward to continuing our work going into 2021 and 2022 as well. Yeah, you mentioned a few times like uh, Europe Horizon and also Brexit. Um, I mean, has it actually sort of improved for UK um, universities or businesses to actually collaborate in these schemes? Because I remember when um, sort of um, the, the, the start of Brexit happened, um, a lot of even top universities, so I was working at Oxford University at the time, were actually asked to drop down from any kind of um, sort of collaborative grants uh, because they would see like, oh, there might be an impact that we will actually not get this funding because there's no clarity in the UK. Has that improved a little bit by now? Um, well, so Kimberly's probably better place to talk about that than, than me, uh, given her role. But I think just from what I can see across the UK research base, um, there, there was a lot of talk originally when Brexit started about, you know, you know, don't include a, Europe, a UK organisation. It's going to be at risk of killing your proposal. And, you, you know, UK organisations can no longer lead projects because, you know, because of Brexit. And I think the reality has been that, you know, that's, if you just look at the statistics, I mean, it's the UK's done still performed very, very well. I mean, it's still been uh, performed very highly in terms of projects that have been funded, particularly in projects in, uh, under schemes, which are called the European Research Council, which is about funding just excellent researchers. So the UK actually, in the, in the most recent call, I think won around about 25% of funding for the ERC. Right. Uh, but, 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 but of course, we, we're right at the... Uh, We've been talking about this transition for years now, uh, and we still are in no um, 
it's not any clearer where we where we're at and um i think uh the added confusion with big confusion with covid makes brexit almost like a sideshow uh I, I i was looking at the news this morning and it was all just around covid there was no, there was hardly anything on brexit which is crazy if you think that you know brexit is now like you know less than 10 days away um but uh but i but you know the the most important thing the message i would say is that you know the European Union's funding scheme is designed around uh, funding excellent organisations and excellent people. The UK research base is is one of the best um, across the European research area, if not the best. Um, and I think you know this. Whilst this this transition may be a bit bumpy, I'd like to think that in the coming years there will be some kind of return back to normality. In just in the the uh, the good of of innovation and good and and, and for Europe's um, you know for the impact of Europe. Uh, in the in the research base, but I think it, Kimberly is better, maybe better place to answer something like that. To be fair, it now that the camera is on uh, at Kimberly's uh, yes. side, it looks to me like she wants to speak up. Uh, hello, Kimberly. Yeah, I would be happy to to add here. I mean, when we're looking at the success um, of the last year, um, UCL has continued to be quite successful in in our European funding. And I think, you know, Astra, it's a really good point. It, the last four and a half years, I've almost become accustomed to the uncertainty and and just sort of living and almost embracing it. Um, and a lot of the time we were managing um, rumors, um, you know, could the UK, could this um, hinder the evaluation and what's already been a very competitive funding program. The previous one, the success rate was 20%. Across the board in in Horizon 2020, it's down to 12.6 percent, and that can be, you know, in even one percent or five percent, depending on the funding program. Um, but I think, particularly, what this last year has shown us is is how important collaboration is in the science world and with industry. And actually, that despite the politics, um, working together is 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 the way forward. It's still really important. And um, UCL is one of we're one of the top receivers of funding um, in Horizon 2020. And over the last four years, we've still maintained our, our position um, and still bringing in a lot of funding. There's other challenges, I think, in, in life and medical sciences with the uncertainties around regulations, um, clinical trials, of course, that have an impact. But um, it's still been uh, relatively positive. Um, and we're, um, well, we still wait to see what's going to happen. Uh, I was recently appointed head of European Research and Innovation at UCL. So it's a very interesting uh, time with both the pandemic. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Let's dig a little bit deeper uh, before we come to the UCL. Uh, in, in a little bit crowd helix, who, who's on there? I think, uh, when, when I think about public funding, about the Horizon program, easily I find the service providers on the market. Uh, but the profession scientists and the universities are a little bit harder to access. What solution has CrowdTelix developed for scientists who want to start the Horizon uh, funding program? So uh, the projects that are now being funded by big organizations like the European Commission are uh, projects to tackle the biggest problems that we're facing around societal mm -hmm. challenges, global challenges. And uh, most of these projects quite often require highly dis multidisciplinary teams, uh, different sectors, different regions, different experts. And quite often um, one researcher or one business will not have that network to to do all of it themselves 
So they may be able to do 50% of the work or have an extended network that will able to, enable them to do, you know, 50% of the work. But quite often, you know, it's very rare for one person, one organization to say, yeah, we can do it all. So what we're trying to do with Crowd Helix is profile expertise at organizational and individual level in order to, to match the needs of people when they're looking to build um, excellent consortia. And it's just like trying to make it easier for people to be to be visible, to connect, to showcase the skills that they offer, and and to build uh, to, to build trusted partnerships that way. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, what's unique or what makes it unique for me is that uh, you really find the deep tech scientists in Crowdhelix, and not only from the UCL but also Oxford, Cambridge, Karolinska Institute, mm -hmm. and all these uh, world class universities with world class scientists, and uh, not only the service providers or uh, people. Uh, just want to do something. Is, is, did, I, did I get the right impression? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think the, the challenge that people have in uh, when trying to get to the right types of people is you look at organizations like UCL, for example, it's huge organization, yeah. you know, thousands and thousands of staff, thousands of researchers, students, lots of different expertise. And it's difficult to see that from the outside uh, if you're if trying if you want to be a collaborator. And what we're trying to do is to provide a, a, a contact way into these organizations so that they can uh, make relationships and, and, and showcase the work that they offer. Um, and doing this not just from bilaterally, but also, you know, across different across multilaterally and also across di different disciplines and different sectors that's great uh talking about the ucl i mean kimberly has uh made some great contacts uh for the life science get together podcast i have not yet succeeded in talking her into also uh, acting as a co-host to uh, brush up my english skills um One of the last episodes that uh, you organized was with, uh, I hope I spelled the name right. I never asked Sriram uh, how the right pronunciation of his name is, Sriram Supramanian, um, who is working on something amazing because it comes directly out of the science fiction world, out of Star Trek and Star Wars. It's touchable holograms. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I I think maybe Astrid, you've been head of research in your organization. When you see things that come across your desk some days, um, you can just pick up some really um, special and exciting research. And this is one where um, I just could see this immediately and and spoke with Shri and and I I said I think we need to link in Crowd Helix here. Um, and then I thought this it would be great for a podcast. Anyone that hasn't listened to him yet, I do recommend uh, that episode. Um, so, and I don't think he did mention um, on the episode, but what's exciting is that um, on the first of January, his new uh, project, which was funded through the European Union Future and Emerging Technologies Program, which is really early stage, novel, groundbreaking um, research that they fund. He's also been a successful ERC grantee. And he has a spin-out company. So at the university, um, when you find and meet academics um, that have all of these different connections um, in terms of the industry and early stage research, um, they've got really good chances of getting funding from, from the European Union. Um, and this project is um, touchless haptic experiences with neurocognitive uh, artificial intelligence. And so they are creating 
Um, so the ambition is to go beyond the functional haptic technologies um, and enable more computer systems to intelligently create the experiences lost in that digital virtual transition. So basically to have experiences that include agency, bonding, and attachment. And I think what's really interesting um, about this is particularly now with more uh, virtual digitization in how we're working and communicating um, with family and friends during this, um, it's really nicely timed um, because it's, it's looking at the lack of social interactions that we have um, and um, how can we tackle that. And basically with no uh, physical interaction, but creating that sense of, of touch. So they've received 4.4 billion to develop this over the next three years. And uh, Crowd Helix will be creating a, a Helix that'll launch as well in the coming months to build a network. And I think with these, we've got a lot of early stage research at UCL. I mean, our biggest portion of our funding um, in our research portfolio is for excellent science and um, looking ahead um, to work with networks like Crowd Helix and the Life Science Get Together of how do we connect um, our early stage exciting research with companies, with investors? How can you see what's happening um, early on? And, and to make sure that that research doesn't stay on the shelf um, is, is, is a really big interest for, for me. And that you yeah, we have also pivoted with the Life Science Get Together Network, uh, especially with the podcast, uh, since Astrid is joining. Uh, Astrid is coming from uh, the blockchain cryptocurrency side with, with her fund. Uh, as far as I understand, UCL is not only doing research in life science and Crowdhelix is, is not only supporting life science companies. Uh, what other tech areas are you covering? Oh, we've, oh, sorry, Michael. Sorry, was oh. that to Crowdhelix or Kimberly? Uh, both, both open question. <laughs> yeah, you, you go, Kim. We're, we have, we're working in, in all areas. We've had uh, a newly launched center on artificial intelligence, which is linked with our computer science mm -hmm. department. Um, we've got a lot of our medical sciences uh, work is also connected with our engineering departments, our humanities, psychology. So we've got a lot of interdisciplinary research. Um, right now, we've got a lot of proposals going into the EU's Green Deal call on climate and energy. Um, but there's also a lot of uh, connection to life and medical sciences there with the health impacts on climate. Um, so we've got sort of a bit of everything at UCL, which also makes it quite challenging to, to tap in or so that's where we work with Crowd Helix to promote these different areas. Michael. Um, so yeah, at Crowd Helix, we at the moment have 27 uh, helixes uh, covering all, all all areas of research and innovation. Um, we've uh, we'll be launching our our newest helix, which will be uh, on cancer, which will be led by Trinity College Dublin. We'll be doing that in January. Um, a couple of big areas for us, uh, for focus areas for Horizon Europe, um, are uh, the missions program. So the Commission have launched uh, this big, really ambitious, like man to the moon type um, program uh, for research and innovation in five key areas, which they've called the missions program. And we will be launching mission uh, helixes in these missions uh, early next year. 
and each mission will be led by um, a leading research organization in, in the respective area. Um, but yeah, we've got um, other helixes to mention, our ones in, in, in VR, in smart cities, um, and one, one key area for us that we will be uh, developing next year is in citizen science as well. So we have a couple of projects in this area that we, uh, that we uh, have been funded to create communities around. So this, is a, this will be a big focus for us in 2021, 2022. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have Astrid and Matthias on the call and uh, Astrid is uh, doing uh, investments in uh, blockchain cryptocurrency i hope i get it right and Lafayette everything is also <laughs> that is developing using uh, blockchain technology or is helping the ecosystem in another way so it doesn't necessarily have to have their own chain but it's for example a platform facilitating um research and analysis on uh for example tokens mm -hmm. very and broad in essence Eva Fires is working in the in the similar space. I just yes. uh, wonder how would be the right way to approach CrowdTelix and UCL in case one of their companies or activities uh, is looking for uh, Horizon funding. What would be the right approach towards you both? I mean, for us, it's for example, uh, I mean, you can find online our portfolio companies. And if you feel that there is sort of a strategic fit between what they're developing um, and what kind of technologies um, you're working on UCL or have an insight into, you know, kind of proposal at CrowdHelix, then there's certainly something that we can facilitate there. Otherwise, we're not a technology provider or developer as such. We use a lot of uh, technical infrastructure, which is very different from a normal venture capital fund, so to say, because this just comes with being able to hold digital assets. Um, so we don't call it cryptocurrency, we call it digital assets, to be honest, because there's a fine distinction if you're in this field, what the one means and the other one. Um, but yeah, I think that that's more in the, in the ribs of uh, Matthias's work and Riyadh's. Maybe, actually. So um, I was listening very closely to what, uh, what you both have been um, discussing, and I'm, I'm really happy that um, um, such efforts um, exist, actually. Like, I'm um, being a researcher myself and having coordinated a Horizon 2020 project um, some five years ago, um, I was, um, I always see the problem and the, and the issues that, um, a lot of research actually, um, is not visible. So there's like this, this whole, um, discipline of, um, um, science communication or like scientific communication. But in my opinion, it doesn't really always reach, um, um, the right audience. And so a lot of um, really good and, and amazing research is like not, um, being discovered. It, 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 at least this is my impression. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm wrong here because also like looking at the, at the past uh, um, development in the, in the past six uh, months, we see also that um, um, a lot of like opening up um, scientific processes can actually help also making specific and individual research possible. And, and um, of course, I think um, all these kind of um, efforts that can actually help um, also collaboration are very, very much needed, especially looking at what we see uh, in the recent um, open access um, principles that have been Put on, on uh, like like that have been uh, deployed in in the COVID pandemic and that helped actually um, making research faster and so on. So um, I'm, I'm I'm really happy that you guys exist and I, I was in the little bit reading up on on the initiatives and and I, I'm I'm fascinated. So um, also um, maybe to a little bit do some advertising for our organization here. So we are a, a small independent research organization that um, hosted two uh, European. Union projects uh, um, since, so one we did, uh, no, both of them we didn't do as, as a lead partner, but we are, um, we have it's like, like positive um, um, experience with it, but also um, 
seeing at how the program changes, to be honest, I didn't look too much into the program that came after, that comes now after Horizon 2020, to be honest, but uh, looking very much forward to continue our discussions, actually. Maybe you become a member of CrowdTelix. I think they have a lot of information. Sure, yeah, why program. not? Uh -huh. Yeah, this is <laughs> definitely, yeah. That's great. What's what's in there in Horizon Europe for for the companies? What's what 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 what's the the most important thing to share? What's in it for the for companies? Mm. I think the fact that if you look at previous framework programs, there was the focus was all about early stage research, uh, academic research, mm -hmm. and uh, the commission have looked back and said we didn't really get as much return of investment or impact from this funding. So they've moved this, the, the inception point from early stage research to more higher level TRLs, applied research. And when you're doing all these projects, the, you need to have SMEs, you need to have innovation actors, end users involved in, in your projects. Um, if you have a, an academic or a university only network, you're not going to succeed. It needs to be, uh, whereas before the composition of a network maybe used to be 90% university, 10% SME. Now it's, you know, 50-50. So really the, the, the change, it's the transition is moving more towards innovation, applied research, bringing stuff to market. And the, the real focus of that are companies, small to medium-sized enterprises. And the commission really, they, they won't, they would obviously not say this out um, uh, explicitly, but that, but it is, their, their real focus is SMEs because they see them as the, the impact accelerators um, you know, of, of the funding that they are investing. I think one of the uh, the programs that's coming up that is, is really interesting, and I think even from the university perspective, is the European Innovation Council's funding, which will be closer to market um, and really also designed for, I think, more for SMEs. But there is still a role for that research collaboration because they're all looking to now fund previously um, funded European Research Council projects, um, proof of concepts that have been successful um, to bridge that gap and to work with industry. Um, and there's more investors connected into this program. And I think what's interesting as well is that the Global Challenges work is also in this program to work with companies. And, um, and it's also in some of the more um, earlier stage research um, programs in Horizon Europe. Yeah, and just to follow on from that, I mean, the, the ideas, the, the outstanding ideas uh, quite often come from the universities, right? The, the research organizations, the projects like SRI, or the, the, uh, the project he is leading on. Uh, but I think when trying to then take that, the, 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 the knowledge that's generated from these amazing academics uh, to market, it, you quite often need a commercial element with that. And so you need businesses and SMEs. And I think the commission realized that uh, with the way that the um, the Horizon Europe uh, program is designed and obviously the the, the importance that the EIC uh, is playing as well. And I completely agree with that. I think um, scientists are very good in developing uh, scientific results, which uh, basically end mostly in publications. And it's, uh, I understand the scientific process as a very creative one, uh, which is good. But when we want to bring something to customers or patients, we have to switch the mindset with the more into a focused development mindset. And I believe the idea of the European Union and European Commission uh, to mix science with development in projects 50-50 will tremendously boost uh, the output in Europe. It's a very, very good idea. 
Absolutely. And I think that's why it's it's so important for research organizations um, and companies to mix in networks like this so that we can, you know, it's about connecting at the earlier stages, um, the people together um, that can make this long-term success. Kimberly and Michael, thank you very much for your support in 2020, uh, for being on a podcast episode, for organizing two further episodes and coming also online today. I wish you both a very Merry Christmas and a very successful and happy start into 2021. Thanks, Christian. Thanks, Christian. Thanks for having us. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. I think it's a very good hook point that... uh, Kimberly and uh, Michael made with uh, talking about entrepreneurs. The next speakers we have on the podcast are uh, bringing in another uh, university from the United Kingdom. It's uh, Cambridge, uh, but actually they operate out of uh, Tyrol. And let's see if we have uh, Clara Brandstetter and Jasmine Günger from the ICT Summer School in Tyrol Online. Clara, are you there? Hello, Christian. Can you hear me? Hi, Clara. Yes, very well. Welcome to the show. Hi. So great. You can hear and you can see me. Yes. Hi. Good to see you. Hi. I'm finding you alone from ICT. Um, Thank you for having me and thank you for the invite. I already listened a little bit to the, the last discussion you had. Sounds really interesting. Sounds like you're having a good morning already and some good discussions. Yeah, yeah, it's going, it's going very well. It's big fun. Oh, Astrid and Matthias. Yeah, sure. It's very uh, a lot of like different inputs and different uh, um, kind of um, approaches. But I guess like um, entrepreneurial um, uh, entrepreneurdom, <laughs> so to say, in, <laughs> in 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 telemedicine is like one of the topics. But also like Black Swan events. So we have all these kind of different aspects of 2020 that we're trying to grasp while in the same time uh, looking at all um, different facets of, um, of I would say, um, uh, important people and things that, that mattered and will matter over, the, over this, this strange year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's been a great morning so far. So we've touched on a lot of topics and managed to avoid the one hot topic of 2020 for a good deal of it, I think, and highlighting some other issues around privacy and, you know, work-life balance and stuff that has happened, you know, on the side. Um, I think also it will be very interesting to hear from you, for example, about being an entrepreneurship, you know, that I think at the beginning of the year, everyone said like, oh my God, no one will invest. Then came the phase when there were very low valuations for even very good companies because I was like, well, this is the COVID factor now. But I fear that I feel that now uh, investing into uh, startups and SMEs and young companies actually on the rise again. So going out of 2020, that the appetite of investors has actually started um, quite strongly there. Yeah. Kara, how was the year in Tyrol? Um, I actually just did a short re- recap for myself over this year, and I came to the conclusion that, like within this like 2020, everybody challenged the entrepreneur within himself, right? Because like we are so used to say, entrepreneurial lifestyle is like you feel the highs and you have really these lows, and you become creative like to how you create your surroundings, and that's not like in 2020 this. 
did not only become true for all the entrepreneurs themselves, but basically for everybody. And I think that's something, or like at least we within the ICT tried to take on all the opportunities we got. But I have to admit at the beginning of the year, especially like March, April, everyone was in this like kind of reaction mode and coming up with ad hoc solutions. But, and this was quite interesting as well with our startups we have been working with. We had like one program still running. This was with all Austrian um, spin-offs. And most of them like were facing this phase from prototype to product, right? And for those who still have their grants, and are really kind of setting up the company, it was kind of okay. But for those who really tried to enter the market and have like their first customer talk, this was really a tough time. But then we realized, like all of you realized, the world become even smaller because internationality, and it was like able that you expand international. And so together with our startups, we had quite a, a steep learning curve, especially in expanding your market and thinking about what is my global unmet sustainable market need. And this is what Richard Lang, he is one of the a quite, um, like he's a person Herman is quite narrow to. Richard is always saying, what is the global unmet sustainable market need? And you always need to question this yourself. And this is what we try to do, especially at the beginning with our startups as well. And then we, within our organization, with the ICT, we realized quite quickly as well, the summer school is our flagship program, right? And usually all the people come to Tyrol and it's like this deep tech week where everybody is coming along and we said, okay, we do not want to skip it because we know we need it because the entrepreneurs need to have this possibility to work on their ideas. But how shall we do it? And therefore we quite quickly realized Let's do it fully digital. And Christian, you have been part of it anyway. And like we decided as well to invest ourselves as a company and to build or expand our own platform because we have the so-called ICT network, which is, um, Astrid, you maybe not know it. This is kind of an online ecosystem, which is based on scientific research from the Cambridge cluster. And it's about like assessing um, the, the products. You can connect the investors with the mentors and so on. And that was up to this year, like beginning of this year, basically about like um, assessing the products and bringing together the mentors and investors and the startups. But with COVID, like we brought it to a total new level and we implemented as well a communication tool in there. So it was kind of, this home base where our startups and the people could go to and this safe environment. And within August, like in August with our summer school, basically our 25 startups locked in every morning at eight and locked out every evening around 10 and had like this super intensive day, but at least they were at their home base, the ICT network. And this was a huge, huge learning for us as well um, to, to not stop. Because you never know, because some of you don't know in April if it's over in April or May or in June or how long it takes, like to not stop and to think how to make the best out of it. And the best out of it in our case was how to still connect the people, like the relevant people to each other and how to keep on growing. And why do you say the relevant people to each other? Because 
as everything is so international and as you are able to basically connect to everybody, right? Because there are no borders. It's even more important to understand what do I need, whom can I ask, and who maybe knows whom can I ask to. This was like one of the one of the major learnings as well for our side. And then we had like one last highlight this year, which was in November, where together Hermann Hauser and Herbert Gartner with the Hermann Hauser Investment GmbH and the IECT we invited for the Spin of Austria conference, which was a huge success, like more than 1,000 people locked in. And we learned about spin-off processes in other countries, best practices, what we do in Austria, what can be better. And this was kind of a kickoff for an initiative which definitely will last longer and had like a, yeah, I have to say it was a really successful kickoff for all of us. And again, it, it showed that this overall building up entrepreneurs, Herman always calls it a team spot, right? There is this entrepreneur, it's super important that you have the entrepreneur himself, but they need to have mentors, experts, investors, um, universities, governments, corporates, and so on. And this is what we really try to highlight with this conference as well. So overall, Christian, um, to answer your question, it was like a speed up year. Lots happened, but I think lots happened because we were um, we were we had the courage to take the opportunities as an organization ourselves, but as well with our startups and our partners. And we moved quite fast forward. And we are all super excited about the following year we bring along, I have to admit, yeah. And how does this actually work together soon? Because you have sort of the entrepreneurship in mind and now there's the spin-off initiative mm -hmm. and there are obviously some, uh, let's say, common grounds in both areas, definitely. I mean, I was working technology transfer um, for quite a while myself. And um, so where do you see this initiative growing or are you working also directly with universities or should it just be like an informative uh, program in the future? So how, what's the vision for it? Um, that's a good question. And that's something we're going to co-create right now. We have like kind of, um, a kickoff beginning of next year and then it's definitely something which should not stand on like one or two shoulders this is definitely something all the players should be involved and it's not only about like informing or raising awareness it's as well about activating but activating doesn't mean that we as IST or Herbert or Herman need to do everything by themselves activating is as well like bringing together already established initiatives universities or seeing what is needed in the market of um, of developing spin-offs and, and making it easier for them. And um, we definitely encourage to kind of stay up to date with the Spin-Off Austria initiative and there will be updates beginning of next year. Yeah, I think Austria is actually quite nice ground for it because we have the FFG, the AWS that provides funding. There's a lot of like sort of uh, county-specific funding. Then in Austria, we're actually lucky that there is one uh, um, research-led uh, uh, fund by the IST Austria in Klosterneuburg that has actually set its mission to specifically um, support and invest in um, uh, like technologies coming out of uh, universities. So I think it's a very interesting aspect that you bring in here as well, together maybe 
um, with other funds that might come back online, like um, spin-off fellowships that came, came up from the, uh, the government. So definitely interesting space to watch. And A lot of potential also in Austria as well. Yeah. And to add on your point with the FFG and the RBS, we have quite some startups who are like kind of Austrian-based. Maybe they studied abroad, but then they came back to found here because they know that especially at the beginning, at this early stage phase, in Austria, we have like really good support in public funding, which makes it really attractive. And especially in these deep tech um, projects, and it's super important to have a backing at the early stage because they are not attractive for investors at the like super beginning when you're still in your concept phase and don't even have a prototype, which is tested in lab environment. And therefore, the, the spin-off fellowship like and the FFG and AWS are super important and really kind of support the flourishing ecosystem. But I think now it's the point. We have like this ecosystem. We had it really growing the last couple of years. Lots of players appeared and um, lots of good vibes are in there. But there's within every industry, right? There's kind of this level where it becomes more mature. And I think we are on quite a good level in this maturity level. But with every maturity level, it starts that processes, structures, structures, standards are necessary. And I think this is the time right now to set up these structures, standards, and so on, to make it even more, um, yet yeah, to get the most out of it, basically. I don't know how do you feel about it? I see it, for example, the same uh, as you, but um, I have to add um, to this um, kind of notion that there's a lot of like early stage startups and that they need support. This is for sure true. But I see on the other hand that we still have, for example, in the blockchain sphere, a lot of regulatory uncertainty and a lot of problems. So um, at least uh, to my knowledge, a lot of startups are moving away from Austria because of this uh, regulatory uncertainty. And this is not only a, um, a regulatory uncertainty in, in, in Austria. This is a regulatory uncertainty. And especially this is a problem for startups being in the blockchain space. Yeah. So while we have a good um, early stage funding and while we have a lot of attempts um, 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 that would actually um, help um, startups like coming out from this scientific or like more research driven sphere, um, we have on the other hand a problem like this uh, in this after um, um, early stage phase um, for um, projects to to settle down in Austria or in Europe because of this regulatory uncertainty. This is an uncertainty that is, um, for example, caused through the um, um, very, very different landscape and very different uh, um, um, uh, implementations of the local jurisdictions within the European Union. And I, I think, think there has been a lot of things um, um, done in 2020 that um, are somehow countering this. So there's, for example, the this, uh, Mika uh, um, paper that was um, coming out by the European Commission, the markets in crypto assets, which is um, relevant and which um, will hopefully um, come and bring the market to a, and, and also the, bring the startups back to, to Europe. But I think like a lot um, of um, damage has been done already. So a lot of like blockchain startups are um, exiting a little bit also um, um, Europe. I hope we can somehow uh, turn this trend around and like bring uh, um, um, this kind of um, startups back to, to Europe and back to Austria, actually. And Matthias, Thank I can you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I just wanted to add on uh, Matthias as well that um, I think also if we think about these entrepreneurship programs in general, I mean, they're great also from level four, you know, sort of the stand your standard starter out there. But if we just think about specifically in the blockchain space, I think people do not appreciate yet how highly interdisciplinary this field is and that it takes much more than just 
business strategy to go. So, I mean, it's a f- huge field on its own, but it's also around all around technology. You have to have people who are really skin deep into this technology and can also really distinguish between the different approaches that are out there. And there's so many, <laughs> to be honest, um, not just a few that, you know, you can find in your top 10 somewhere. Um, and also asset management experience. So I think people just do not appreciate yet that um, tokens, a different name for it is actually digital asset. Mm-hmm. So it is something that you have to actually sort of take from the side of asset management and say like, how do you actually go about this? These things are listed on some kind of um, exchanges of non-regulated exchanges and um, people still don't understand what, what it actually means to get it onto such an infrastructure because people sometimes have it in a manner, okay, if you do an IPO, then you have, you know, you go to the stock market and it's already much closer to them. But this is effectively what is happening in the crypto space with uh, the tokens as well. I think there's also a lot of specialist knowledge if we just speak about our own kind of uh, era, like uh, Matthias and I am working in. Um, I think that comes on top of everything that is sort of uh, together with regulation as well. I, I see, I totally see your point and I see it kind of as a vicious circle as well because um, our ecosystem, like in general in Austria, developed quite fast the last years, but um, we weren't able like to keep up with all these processes and to check all the regulatories, which now makes it for some special parts make it not that attractive, but on the other hand, the world doesn't stand still until Austria is ready to keep up with all these regulations and so on. And already new stuff is appearing, like um, Astrid and Matthias, you mentioned, especially in, in, in niche or in specialized markets. And um, therefore, it's kind of a, yeah, I see it sometimes as a vicious circle. But on the other side, what we learned at the spin-off Austria conference as well is speed is the handmaiden of innovation, right? And therefore, we can't, wait and stand still and 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 check if everybody is ready it's kind of what you the two of or the three of you are doing here bringing together people and checking out what opportunities are there to become even faster and if it's only for small parts but like to to elevate and raise those parts so i'm really thankful that you're hosting it and that i am able to be part of it and to be part of this discussion as well Clara, thank you very much for joining. Uh, I think it's a very good hook point because we have two other speakers in the line waiting to get the mic. Uh, you're doing a really great job in Daryl with, with your program and I was amazed to see it this year as a mentor. Uh, I can really recommend this program to any scientist who wants to look into entrepreneurship. Hermann Hauser and his team have in my opinion, built one of the best programs we have in Europe who really make... Uh, this difficult topic understandable in a very easy way. And I will be happy to stay in touch in future, Clara. I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Christian. And I want to um, shout out the invite to Astrid, Christian and Matthias to join next year. And I wish you a Merry Christmas and have a lovely afternoon and good discussions. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. So we have the next speaker coming in uh now we are heading to germany and uh let's see if we can avoid the topic we don't want to talk about today with you welcome to the show thomas <laughs> I, I i just wonder uh, what topic do you mean we are not talking about uh, the topic we don't uh, talk about today is <laughs> okay actually no but it's just, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah. How is how is it going in Germany? Uh, <laughs> we are also under lockdown. I, I, I don't understand the differences of lockdowns in, in Europe. I, I have no clue. So I, we have a double lockdown. My, my wife is Italian, so we have the lockdown in Italy, so no one is moving there. And in Germany, we have lockdown, at least in a way of that a lot of shops are closed, but others are open and no one understands what is the difference. So that's the lockdown and we will see. I hope it have effect and it will be very strange Christmas days probably this year. Yeah, that'd be very interesting. It's the same here in Austria. We had uh, a conversation, I think it was six months ago, seven months ago about... Don't ask me. <laughs> on, <laughs> it feels like 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Good that you bring that up. I got uh, Spotify I'm, I'm listening my music on Spotify and I'm a member since um, I think since Spotify exists and every year they send uh, a summary of my year on Spotify and it's very interesting to see that and this year they started with the line thank you for being with us in the 67 months of 2020 <laughs> so I think it, it, it describes really well how it feels <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it really feels like this because, uh, I mean, no one would have expected uh, that the world changes and that uh, we do our own discovery, not only discovery, but also try to push a, a project into the clinic in a very short time. But this is not the subject I want to talk, I think. Because <laughs> no, <laughs> so I don't use yeah. the word. It, it, no, but it's it's interesting and amazing how uh, we all are able to adjust um, to this very new circumstances and that we are able to develop new, uh, let's say, powers <laughs> um, in a way, I mean, trying to to bring a, a project into a clinic in less than a year was i think previously impossible and now it's possible and how regulatory for example is pushing us it's not like i mean i'm not experienced in this field but i know from other people that they're surprised because normally you you should deliver more and more and more and you are delayed uh, but now is they're asking us, why can you start not earlier? And this is a situation, I think, which is extremely interesting. And maybe we can take something out of it in the future. Because ima imagine that you need maybe, maybe not, not a year, but let's say you, you can go into the clinics uh, one or two years faster than in the past. Of course, assuming that you do your job and you have a safe drug, uh, because I think a lot of things in the regulatory part is also bureaucratical, and um, maybe we can improve it, yeah, without risking safety. Yeah, I, I'm of course very careful. I'm also very skeptical, actually, that uh, uh, that maybe the fast development process uh, bears risk. We should we should know that, but still we learn something and maybe uh, we can do steps faster in the future and spare a year or two in the development and saving lives. That's that's a simple truth, 
economically, it's, it's also tremendous. I mean, imagine for a company being two years faster, what it means. A small company can 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 save, I don't know, ten, ten, tens of millions maybe, which makes drug development maybe, I'm very skeptical about it still, maybe more democratic, uh, meaning it's not just in the hands of of the of the big investors and the big pharma companies, but maybe it it also offers opportunities to develop a product even into the market um, without them. Still, it costs hundred million and more. It, it's, it has to be clarified, but it was, I think, estimations from big pharma were in the range of uh, one to three billion per one drug, and and uh, now we are talking about uh, ten times less. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I think this is an amazing experience, and I think big pharma is learning also a lot in parallel with us. And sometimes, uh, or some companies are maybe behind, not in a way that they couldn't do it, but just that they are not prepared from 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 a management perspective. To, to take such an opportunity very fast. Yeah. I completely agree to what you say. I think uh, in 2020, life has thrown a huge learning experience on the human race. And uh, it's really great to see um, how much developed in one year. I think on one hand, failure culture, I mean, uh, it's necessary to try things out. Also, politicians should be allowed to do so. And not everything that, I mean, we as entrepreneurs know that, not everything that we try works, actually. So we need to try a lot of things to find the few that work. And uh, looking at the pharma industry, I think uh, the speed, speeding up the processes tremendously makes it very exciting to be in the industry, to see a vaccine coming to the market uh, within 12 months. Uh, on a very high standard. So I think uh, on safety and regulatory issues, it was not cut back. Um, but it's not only on the vaccine side. Uh, the reason why I asked you to join us is that uh, when we had our podcast interview, uh, you were talking about spinning out a new company. <laughs> and uh, I think it was two or three days ago that on Facebook, a friend um posted a link to an article with the comment, maybe this is the solution for the topic we don't want to talk about today. <laughs> uh, and uh, What what about <laughs> the, the spinning out a company? No, uh, I don't, you, you can see, you can see <laughs> this very deep under my... Uh, <laughs> I you don't guys, know even... Can, can you tell us a little bit more about Corot Therapeutics? I think you had recently good data coming, coming out of your studies. Or did I misinterpret it? Um, Nicorus Therapeutics is on the way into the clinic. So data is, we published publications, but I think everything we do is, we, we sometimes feel we are one step behind, but but we are completely in the range to, to compete with much bigger parties in, in, I mean, we're talking about Regeneron or Eli Lilly. I mean, they are these are companies which are a thousand times bigger than, than Corot Therapeutics and UMAP together. And in this way, competition is not actually also not the goal. We have a different approach and we may uh, go into that type of patients they cannot do. We will see. I mean, I cannot promise it. 
today. I mean, we will see that on the clinical data. We have done everything we could in a very short time with relatively limited resources. Yeah. So my question would be, what could we have done when we would have 20 million in our back for the first step instead of, uh, I, I don't know, three? Yeah. This, this is... This is a theoretical question. I, I think we could spare us three months or something, and we wouldn't have maybe to work even weekends and evenings, but that's another story. Um, uh, yeah, the success we will see in the clinic. I, I'm very, very careful to say what we have in data is 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 promising everything i mean we we that, that's that's we, we learned from the antibody uh, therapies that for example the regeneron product and the eli lilly product they are for example not approved for severe covid-19 yeah so that's uh, i shouldn't use the word i know but um <laughs> it's just the subject of this year and uh, and still we we don't find the data why not for example mm -hmm. we just can speculate what could happen in these clinical studies i mean i don't we don't know that we are very curious to know what what went wrong and that shows a little bit the problem of you said diversity is the key of success a, a larger number a number of drug development program vaccine development program is key of success because we we can see in the vaccines uh, development projects, some of them are delayed or on hold or stopped. And the success rate is is high. It's incredibly high compared to everything we know from oncology, for example. Yeah, But it's still that you cannot say this is one project. I Let's say the government invests in one company. That's it. Uh, you have to invest in 10 projects or maybe in 50 projects. And not only one government, but all the governments and the VHO or whoever um, should invest. Uh, and then we, we will have maybe 10 drugs better than zero. And that's the situation and the same with the vaccines. Uh, I, I just want to comment on the safety. I'm, I'm very sure that everyone tries its best. Yeah. Um, um, I think the quality is extremely high from everything I can see also from the other parties. That's, as I have no doubt that, uh, except there, there's maybe some, some, some studies with, where they claimed with 70 patients, they have already approved drug. This is another story. Uh, uh, but most of them doing a good job. Nevertheless, there's some restriction. We, we can see effects sometimes after years. So that means time will tell the story and we will learn from that. So I'm carefully to say uh, in, in a few weeks, we have the first vaccine programs here in Europe or in, in Germany um, starting and in a half year, everything is over because no one can really say that. First of all, we don't have the doses for everyone. Second of all, we don't know what's happening when you are vaccinated today. And you will be maybe infected or you get in touch with the virus in, in one year because it will not be gone in one year. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure this virus is distributed all over the world. And if it ever will be controlled or completely controlled, I mean, it will be controlled. I'm sure of it. Um, it's not clear. That's why I just want to comment on 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 what we know today. We did a good job, 
many many did a good job, yeah. Um, but what happens in a year or two, no one really knows. No, yeah. I agree. The barriers will definitely not go away. What solution is Corot working on? It's an antibody solution, but what, what makes it special compared to other competitors? Like no, yeah, very briefly. I mean, we are also have a neutralizing antibody, which is actually, in my opinion, was the only chance to do very fast. If you do a more complex approach, um, where the biology is not clear. I mean, we neutralize the antibody, uh, the, the virus, which is a simple approach. You can test it. There are experimental data which tell you that the antibody works. That's the reason why these approaches um, were done mostly in the world. The second type of approach are already existing drugs which have a different mode of action, which are going on the symptoms. But to develop such a drug, you cannot do in, in 12 months. It's not possible because the biology is not clear. You have to do much more um, experimental work. Um, however, what we did differently to others is that we looked or we decided already in May, I mean, really very early on when uh, no other drugs, drug was only in a way in the clinics, I think, we decided we go directly in a safety approach because we know that infections of the virus, they generate antibodies. And in case of uh, coronaviruses and other viruses, um, after a certain time, when the, the title of antibodies uh, go down, the reinfection can be stronger, which is the called of uh, so-called antibody-dependent enhancement. And also, uh, especially in COVID-19, uh, there's a strong inflammation. Yeah, And we ha we decided we don't want to put um, like a bomb into, into, into the situation, into the lung and make it worse. Yeah, And maybe increase the infection, even if you help. But if the conditions are not perfectly right in each patient, you may maybe do it worse. And that's what I already said. We don't know yet. Um, because we haven't seen the data, we just hear rumors that it might have already occurred in some of these studies. That's the problem. And we have a setup which is not activating this immune system at all. So we neutralize only the virus. We prevent it from infecting tissues. Of course, you will need other drugs too. I mean, you need other treatment options and the patient needs time to recover. And we hope that we can give him this time to fight the virus himself. Thomas, you are doing a great job with Corot and I hope uh, you keep pushing forward. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining today. We have uh, our next speaker coming online right now. Uh, maybe we maybe we make another episode uh, in three or four months when you have the clinical data in to to follow up. But on, definitely, uh, please. The great work. It would be very great to hear that. I wish you and your team a very merry Christmas and a great start into 2020. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Bye bye. So we have one topic I think we didn't speak about today. It's uh, the riot on the stock market uh, in 2020, and it was also a hell of a riot. And I'm very happy to have uh, a representative of uh, the Viennese Stock Exchange uh, today on our panel. Welcome to the show, Julia Resch. Hi. Thanks for inviting me to the show and um, opening up the topic of the stock market. 
How was how was your year in 2020? Yeah, I mean, for the stock markets, it's quite, it was quite a ride this year. <laughs> there was uh, high volatility, of course, in the market due to the COVID-19 pandemic and all the measures to contain the virus. And uh, speaking from the view of the stock market infrastructure provided, it was also very challenging. We not only had the pandemic, uh, but also a terror attack in the inner city of Vienna. And um, yeah, it was our our most important goal is to keep up our infrastructure at any time to make trading available to our, our investors. So this was really a challenging year that challenged all our crisis uh, plans. But yeah, but thanks, thanks God, it, everything went smoothly and we were well prepared, all our colleagues. Yeah, I remember when in March we had uh, a huge crash. I think the market uh, collapsed before 40%. How did you perceive that? How was the... How was the uh, situation in your team? I mean, of course, I've been working for the stock exchange for more than 10 years now. You, you, When you see more, I have experienced other crises too. So you get a little used to the ups and downs. But of course, yeah, if the crash is coming, it is, um, yeah, it is... Um, it is very interesting and everyone uh, is running together and the telephones are ringing. So it is, uh, it was an intense communication with everyone. And we, we were also as a stock market provider, we tried to communicate with our stakeholders, with the investors, with the companies. We, we tried to be there also as a communication platform for our clients. So that was interesting. But yeah, we also try to emphasize a financial literacy perspective that investing is long term and um, the Austrian companies are very stable companies. And uh, just because the current situation is uncertain, we, we ask investors to still keep the long term view. Um, mm. No, I, I mean, I agree with that. I also experienced some crashes. I think the first one was in 1987. Uh, then we had the next one that I remember in 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. Exactly. We had another one in 2008. Exactly. And then a couple of uh, minor crashes with quick recoveries from 2008 to 2020. Uh, but nothing serious in my opinion. So uh, don't losing the nerves uh, yes. think, uh, comes naturally then. But <laughs> there was one thing special in this year. Mm -hmm. uh, the recovery was very quick. So the, the mm -hmm. market went down by 40%. And my personal expectation was maybe it stays down for one or two years. So it will be a longer time until it recovers. Uh, but actually, I think it took two months. And the markets uh, were rising again. How did you? How do you perceive that the recovery after that? I mean, it would we would probably have to talk to analysts to explain this in more detail um, because we in the stock exchange are more the IT providers mm -hmm. and we don't have a lot of experts on the economic developments and and I think ex, uh, analysts would be more proficient to talk about that. But but still, yeah, the rebound was um, was intense, especially in November when the uh, news was out that there there is a vaccine. Um, so the, the Austrian national index had its uh, its largest rebound uh, ever in, hi mm. in its history. So that was yeah. quite intense. Yeah, <laughs> we were talking with, with the previous speakers. We were talking about uh, the increase in international internationalization in this year, so that uh, investors work with entrepreneurs from all over the world. Do you have a similar observation with your investor space on the on the Austrian stock market that also more money and more investors 
are, are coming to your playground? Um, I can only um, now quote a very long-term perspective. So in over the long run, in we have acquired quite a lot of international trading participants and investors. So currently the, the volume that international investors trade on the Vienna Stock Exchange is over 80%. Mm. So that's uh, quite okay. a high internationalization that we went through in the past decade. And also this year, we, we, we managed to onboard two new trading members and both are international trading members. It's uh, on the one hand signed BR, BRK Financial Group and XTX mm. Markets. Um, that we onboarded this year. So yeah, I think um, the trading base, the investor basis in on the Vienna Stock Exchange is quite international, yes. Mm -hmm. the, the thing is, I mean, we had a talk in, in June uh, with uh, Henriette Lininger, mm -hmm. and I think there was one interesting point that I was not aware of. When I think of the stock market, I always had the perception it's more for mature companies that already have thousands of employees. But uh, I remember the information from Henriette that uh, actually the Venice stock market has developed certain products uh, that also support early stage companies that are not already multinational big uh, corporations. Uh, how did that develop in 2020? Yeah, that um, is a good point because we have seen five debuts in the newly or the newly founded in the sense of last year, a direct market and direct market plus. Mm -hmm. So there were, there were five companies joining us in the, um, in the junior segment uh, this year. In 2020? Is good. In 2020, yes. For which industries? Um, so there's a Biogena group, which you mm -hmm. might know, um, a micronutrient uh, um, company from Salzburg, based in Salzburg, and Aventa, uh, who joined direct market plus, um, is a real estate company. So those are the Austrian companies. And then there are more from uh, joining us from that are international companies, Sun Mirror, Creatives Group, an Italian company, and CAG International AG. AG. Mm. So two Austrian companies and three international ones joining the junior segment. So it also makes sense for earlier stage companies to reach out to the stock market. Absolutely. Uh, for all those companies who have an um, investor base that wants their shares traded, and it can also be an asset if you have an employee share pro program running that you um, reach out, that you make your stocks tradable on a stock market. Uh, that can make sense for, yeah, think for stock of, companies. I think one of the Austrian life science companies was MarinoMed. I think uh, they, yeah. they went public last year. Was it? Uh, they went public last year, and it's really a great role model that shows that Uh, listing on the stock market and and funding in Austria and it's possible they they really went through the whole funding escalator basically um, and uh, were able to get funding public funding also in certain in stages um, AVS uh, funding and then later really prove that they can do a stock market debut um, mm. and they have been uh, also quite an interesting investment so far I mean they almost doubled their market capitalization. Um, wow. are one of the top uh, mm -hmm. performing stocks this year. So that was also quite a great role model to, to show that, uh, yeah, it is possible to get funding in Austria and it's possible to be uh, very successful on the stock market uh, in this field. For, for life science, uh, digital companies, I think everything went very well. Uh, for some not, so I learned a lot as a retail investor, one had the crash. 
Uh, I was so happy that not much happened until June. <laughs> uh, then, yeah, I learned about Wirecard, uh, which was uh, more coming from also the cryptocurrency side. Uh, Astrid Matthias, how did you perceive uh, the Wirecard case, case? Oh, I mean, Wirecard and also what we had in Mattersburg in Austria are just very good examples why blockchain is a very good and useful technology for auditing as well, because that would likely not have happened if you set it up correctly. So don't forget that also um, certain blockchains are only set up in a way that are not more secure than centralized systems. So it needs to be, again, um, uh, people will need to speak to experts and think about you know what um, kind of infrastructure they would have it on. But also talking about um, Wiener Börse and uh, cryptocurrency, I mean, We've also had this year where Wiener Börse engaged with, I think it was 21 shares or so. Yes. So that makes it possible for so traders to uh, get into Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is already a great step forward. So I'm hoping that we'll see more of that in the future. But it's already, definitely already a good start there. Yeah, we try to broaden the, the offer for retail investors who seek an exposure in this asset class. Um, that's what we try to make possible with 21 shares products. And in general, I want, would like to add that speaking about retail investors, it is very important to diversify broadly in general. And um, maybe if you if you don't if you're not an expert in investing, you you pick a broad product, a, a fund, uh, an ETF, and then you have the diversification already included in the product. You should yeah. have told me in May. <laughs> so, <laughs> this was this was the this was one of the, the few times that I have thrown this principle overboard. Uh, because mm. I was thinking it's a big company, it's in the German index, uh, proficient board, proficient yeah. uh, supervisory board, proficient auditors, banks, and still things happen and diversification is key to success, I guess, on the stock market. It was a great reminder. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Matthias, how did you see it uh, in terms of cryptocurrency, stock market 2020? I mean, yes, we see still a lot of... Um... Interesting um, elements. So there's um, this kind of ups and downs of Bitcoin that we see, um, especially also a lot of um, um, issues that people seem to have in uh, trusting in the, the value of the of the monetary system. So I think like there's um, the um, huge um, kind of inflow to cryptocurrency markets that we can see that have maybe something to do with um, a lot of uh, new money being printed and um, new um, developments that. That we um, read and hear about in the US, but in um, in general, I think um, yeah, this is not as I said, the year is not over yet, and I think there's still something to come. So so um, just when you always think there's like nothing else that that um, that is on the horizon, something something will show up. I'm quite certain about that. So um, looking at the Bitcoin price, for example, in the past 30 minutes can also show us that possibly we see the, the lows of the of this year in the same year. This would be really interesting. No, no. It, it, it will go up 20 times. It will go up 20 times. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I'm looking at um, these specific models and especially seeing that um, 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 there is Austrian companies now that are um, considering uh, uh, public shares and going public actually um, um, is fantastic because um, especially... Thinking back into this um, um, kind of days in 2017, it was, uh, I believe, when uh, ICO fundraising was the big thing and was um, uh, there was attempts to to replace the IPO. Uh, I think it's it's actually um, a good thing that we see like um, um, this traditional financial um, kind of instruments being like used. And I would love to see more in that because I think like we are still 
still not there and we could uh, use a lot of more um, uh, companies um, going public. So I'm really happy to see these kind of developments. That's fantastic news. Julia, thank you. <clears throat> thank you very much for joining. Uh, it's a great work that the Austrian stock market is doing, actually, expanding the services to make it more accessible, training people in financial literacy and making sure that everybody learns and understands what the stock market is and that it can be beneficial for everybody. I think it's very important training that you're doing with your team. I wish all of uh, the employees at the stock market a very Merry Christmas and a good start into 2020. Thank you. Same to you. Season's greetings from the Vienna Stock Exchange to all of you. Thanks also for your work. It's uh, uh, always very helpful um, to be invited to, this, to have this discussion going on. And so I hope we will continue our dialogue next year. With yes, all our let's, do so. let's do so. Let's do something together. <laughs> have a great day. Thank, Thank you. you. You too. Bye-bye. We have covered a range of topics. Uh, Do we have anything open? What 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 else happened in 2020, Astrid and Oh, let me look at my cheat sheet. <laughs> <laughs> you have something like that? No. <laughs> It was completely unprepared. <laughs> I mean, we, we covered most of the blockchain things, right? So um, we had, um, as you said, initially, Astrid, a lot of institutional adoption, which I think um, is interesting. Uh, we maybe didn't cover the recent um, attempts of Facebook to, uh, so this, this kind of Libra rebranding, So we had Libra and the not Libra in the same year, no? Was it, was it all this? Yeah, true DM. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, in the uh, trademark uh, case. There. I, think sure, Libra, sure. I think Libra is, I thought Libra is dead, that Facebook abandoned it. No. No? I mean, there has been like a lot of renaming happening and a lot of like um, different things and especially like looking um, at the adoption um, um, that you have been mentioning, um, Astrid, PayPal, PayPal and so on. Mm. So the large um, um, financial industries, like, like, like payment providers are like uh, are finally, um, so to say, accepting or like uh, moving into the space for sure. And um, so this can actually mean that uh, we hopefully see a lot of developments there. And I'm, I'm reading from our cheat sheet, which is which is a good thing. So it, um, so it looks like I'm not in my, in my, in my head, but not. We don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and, and as I said, of course, like in the beginning, I think still um, um, for me, the most fascinating things are um, these kind of changes uh, in um, transparency and like uh, availability of research. This is like mm -hmm. something which um, I see uh, as a very positive thing. And I think this has also been something that um, our, our different guests have actually um, somehow also validated this kind of idea. And... I mean, there are specific things we could talk about, which are like very Austrian specific, which we decided not to cover particularly. <laughs> as I, we... Yeah, but I, I think uh, let's just stay a little bit at uh, the, the uh, enhanced level of collaboration. I think it's important because yes. when, you, when you said Austria, I said, no, we should not go back to that thinking uh, to stop at our borders. I think, I mean, even with the podcast. So I had this, this idea of doing a podcast for a couple of years, uh, but actually talking people into going online, doing something with a camera, with Zoom. It didn't feel very comfortable to many people, which I understand because there was no experience. And as we see today, I mean, we had a whole range of amazing speakers from all over the world, from all over Europe, uh, willing to collaborate, to come together to solve the world's biggest problems. And I think for me, this is the key takeaway of 2020. So we see a level of collaboration from 
uh, I mean, Greg Mannix, for example, mentioned that they have uh, an investment base from investors from Asia, from Europe, from, from the United States. Also, CrowdTelix is collaborating pan-European and also with universities from all over the world. Um, I hope that uh, this spirit of collaboration, of working together, of forgetting about borders, uh, forgetting about gender issues, forgetting about uh, skin color, race. I mean, we also have this, had this Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. I, I really hope that the human race evolves uh, further and this is in a good way uh, to just uh, learn that the only solution to everything is working together, in my opinion. Definitely. Yes, to all. So I, I think this is um, um, something which the future will actually show us. So if, if this um, if, if, if we can continue this kind of um, huge collaborative move. I'm not that positive though on everything because um, I think like dream situations um, like COVID are um, in a way um, somehow also um, creating this kind of um, illusion that there's a lot of cooperation going on at the same time as we also covered briefly in the, in the, in the few hours that we spoke. Um, there's a lot um, of um, attacks on um, different technological systems. We see a massive um, um, rise in, in online scams in, in, in different um, also malware threats uh, around the globe, which are also um, due to the fact that more people are online now and that more people are um, using technological devices and technological services um, um, are getting um, exploited and are getting attacked. So this is a big problem in my opinion and um, the shows us also that the world is not all uh, um, like uh, Schlaraffenland, as you say, or like a, or like, like a positive place to be. But I hope that we see um, 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 a lot of um, things also resolved um, in a way. I mean, still we have a, um, we have a lot of uh, um, other crises to, to fight off. There's still also um, a, a refugee crisis on some parts of the, of the planet. So we have um, a lot of things to, to cover. And I think like more collaboration in this regards and a lot of scientific um, collaboration and transparency could actually help in this regards. I think that uh, bottom line is wherever you know there is light, there is there are also shadows. So there is never you know any perfect scenario for anything. But I think I like the ending words sort of to say from Christian to say like okay, there is a push into a more collaborative mode. It depends on you know on behavior, biology, and many other things. You know, if this year was sort of enough <laughs> to change really such behavioral patterns long term or if we will just fall back into what we have had before um uh, so it's i think that's an open question but um i think it's best to try to keep a positive outlook from all the sort of darkness that we have had this year and have some rays of lights there that um you know the future will be a better one in any event I think the light will shine brighter in future. And I think <laughs> the human race is on a good way. Yeah. Um, I think you said a very important term, the ending words. Uh, I think we had a very nice, great, exciting conversation with awesome speakers from all over the world. I'm very happy for bringing up the idea. It was, it was basically your idea and also bringing in okay. the fires. Uh, it was very great to learn more about digital assets so i tried to, <laughs> <laughs> to 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 pick up the topic and uh Mephias, maybe we can do another episode in a, in a couple of sure. weeks i good. wish you two a very merry christmas and you too. great start into 2021 thanks everyone also for listening in and thanks uh, christian for hosting this podcast really exciting you know what will 
uh, bring to the table in next year. So looking very much forward to that. And also thanks, Matthias, for uh, getting online for our episode here today. And I'm sure we'll ask you a few more times next year as well. <laughs> cool. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.